Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday morning, April the 15th, 843-661-0937. Morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. So this morning is Good Friday. Um, it is yes. not simply a bank holiday. You want to get preachy first thing this morning, or you want to let people get wide and awake? Does, does, do we know what the designation of Good Friday means? Um, it coincides with Passover. You know, um, Good Friday has, uh, what is it, from March 15th to April 23rd. It's about the moons, the, the moon cycles and all these other. Um, in other words, Christmas is May, uh, December 25th. Um, New Year's Day is January the 1st. Um, Thanksgiving is November the 25th. Easter could be, yeah, yeah, right. It yeah, the, the Thursday. Third Thursday. Yeah, that's correct. You're right. There's another floater, but it doesn't float anywhere near as much as Easter floats because <laughs> right. Easter can go from what? Mid to late March to mid to late April. I mean, I think there's a five week period of time. Is it an early Easter or a late Easter? We're having a late Easter, um, this year, but there are three holidays in the Christian faith that, uh, are, are the centerpieces. They are um, the protein on the plate, so to speak. And um, obviously, uh, Christmas is a time of the year we uh, we celebrate the virgin birth. Um, probably didn't happen on December 25th. But why does it matter when you're celebrating a virgin birth, whether you do it in December or July? It doesn't matter. Something as monumental as that. Um, Good Friday is the day of which well, Christ made his way into. Jesus made his way. If you believe the biblical accounts, Jesus made his way into um, the city uh, on Monday or Sunday, and that began the Holy Week. Um, last night would have been the Lord's Supper. Uh, that's when he proclaimed that Peter would deny, and uh, just a lot of cool things happened in the Christian faith. But I've always felt the virgin birth is supernatural. Mike can't comprehend it. You can't comprehend it. I can't comprehend it. Theologians have tried to study it. Religious scholars have tried to study, you know, the the, the factuals or not. Um, but it's still the supernatural. The resurrection Sunday is supernatural. No question about it. A virgin birth and a, uh, you know, raising from the dead or something humans don't have, I don't think, the intellectual capacity uh, to, to, to fundamentally understand. So faith becomes a big part of this. I believe in something. I don't know it to be true, but I believe in it. Um, Good Friday's different. And I've always argued that Good Friday is the most consequential humanistic day this world has ever known. Um, Good Friday is a day that real people made real decisions about other people's real actions. And I'm talking about the Sanhedrins, and I'm talking about Pontius Pilate, and I'm talking about a crucifixion, and I'm talking about barbaric Romans. I mean, there, there wasn't anything supernatural about that. An empty tomb is supernatural. A virgin birth is supernatural. Um, men flogging and beating another human being to death, there, there's nothing supernatural about that. Now, the supernatural was intertwined in all of this, but I've just always felt that today, is the most consequential day in human history. To, to take Christ the Savior out of the equation, um, he was beaten as a mortal. Um, I've often said, you know, Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't, um, Jesus chose to be crucified. I mean, if he's son of God, if he is 100% God, 100% man, here we go with things we don't understand. Um, he could have struck the Romans dead in the blink of an eye. I mean, if he controls every second of the universe from beginning to end, he could have stopped the, the crucifixion if he chose to. But he knew it was a, a prophetic event that had to happen to leave 
uh, to a saving of the world. Now, now, once again, that's the Christian's interpretation. I certainly understand that everybody doesn't buy into that. I mean, I do, but everybody else doesn't. So I'm always respectful of those who fundamentally disagree with my uh, interpretation of where the center of the universe lies. Larry King said it, and I'll never forget it. Larry King was a non-believer, but they asked Larry King, who had interviewed probably the most prominent people of his time. I mean, if you were interviewed by Larry King, you were a big deal. I mean, that was the, in the early days. That was in the good days of CNN, right? Yeah, when they, they were, were the good. most trusted name yeah. in news. And he had this show that came on late in the evening, and he interviewed very important people, very, very interesting people. Uh, Larry King, when asked, you know, if you had one interview to do, who would the interview be with? And he said, Jesus. And the fundamental question is, are you, were you the son of God? Because if that's true, nothing else in the universe matters. That's the center of the universe and nothing else matters. Um, Christians believe that. Others ponder, um, question, uh, wonder whether that was true or not. But, but today is a day that I still believe is, is the day that reflects humankind. Um, there were examples of human decency. That There were examples of humans not being so decent. There were examples of humans questioning uh, eternity and their mortality, thief on the cross. There, there were others who did not. So it's just um, it's the, it's the, the human experience um, cap- captured in, in one single event. And, and as much as I'd love to believe that had I been there, I would have been one of the few that said, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm here. I, I don't deny. Um, I think he's who he says he is. I would have probably done, I don't think I'd have done what Judas did. I don't think I would have betrayed for 30, you know, pieces of silver, but, but I think I would have done what Peter did. I think would I, you know, excuse my French. I think I would have said, nope, don't know him. Don't have any idea who that long haired guy is running around saying he was God. Um, yeah, those whips and chains and the barbaric way you do things. Uh, what is the Leonard Skinner saying? Uh, give me two steps or is it three steps? Give me three steps, mister. Uh, that would have been my uh, probably response uh, as I stood there and watched what was about to happen and had a chance to deny or not. Uh, fear would have probably overtaken me and I would have probably looked for a way to head to the heels. Give me three steps, mister, and you won't see me no more. But but I do believe that Good Friday, it's not a day that banks close. <laughs> it's not a day that we have mattress sales or, you know, some other sort of suit sale at your local retailer. To me, it's the most consequential day in human history because human beings had to try and grapple with the supernatural. Um, Christ told his followers, this is the way it goes down. And he told Peter, Peter, you will deny. Peter had seen the miracles of the first person. And Peter said, no, I won't. <laughs> but he did. Why? Because we're human beings and, uh, and we have this human frailty that none of us um, can escape. And I think today, once again, Sunday, the resurrection is the supernatural. Christmas, the celebration of the virgin birth is the supernatural. Ain't nothing supernatural about a crucifixion. I mean, the Romans were real good at it. Christ was just a very different subject to be crucified. Let's go to the phone. Here is DW. Morning, Don. Hey, guys. How you doing? Hey, DW. Hey, man. I got an Easter story for you. Uh, last week, a friend of mine calls me up because she knows I got connections with a lot of people who pray. She called me up and said, uh, DW, I just want to let you know that my son's dying, my only son, which I have connection with. A son dying only, and uh, he's real sick. Liver failure, uh, pneumonia, 
they give you just a few days to live, you get people to pray. I said, sure I will. You know I will. So I got on Facebook, like I always do, and put some stuff up about praying for my friend, asked him to pray for him, told him what, the cons- you know, what was going on in his life. And that was on a uh, Saturday night late. Sunday morning, she went back to the doctor, to the hospital, and same scenario. You know, he's not going to be here a few more days. You need to go and spend time with him and go. So everybody's praying for him like we always do, asking God to heal him. Well, Monday she gets up and she goes to uh, to the hospital. Well, they walk in the door, and the nurses say, it's a miracle. It's a what? They walk in the room. He's sitting in the chair, smiling. Now, he was incapacitated, didn't know who he was, where he was, what was going on, had no chance to live. He was sitting in the chair smiling. And um, she started crying. She said, it's a miracle. And the doctor said, I can't explain it. It's a miracle. She calls me up and says, DW, this is what's going on. All the praying that, that went on worked. On Good Sunday, we prayed. Uh, Palm Sunday, we prayed. And Monday, he's he's sitting in the chair smiling at me, talking to me. People want to know what the answers are in life. People want to know what's good things in life. The answer is Jesus. The things that change your life is Jesus. And uh, her life has changed because of her son, her only son now, is up and around and moving because people prayed. That's the answer you want to hear. So if you want to thank somebody, don't thank the people up, up in the senators and the Congress and all the people. Thank Jesus that he does what he still does. That's the great Easter story. Thank you guys for listening. Appreciate you. You have a happy Easter. God bless you. And uh, thank Jesus for what he did. Thank Jesus you, D.W. Appreciate it, my man. Wow. Uh, Rev sitting here nodding his head because D.W. is a prayer warrior. Mm-hmm. I mean, there ain't no doubt about it. Um, if he's putting something on Facebook – He's either complaining about liberals <laughs> or he's requesting he's requesting prayer. Um, and he's been very consistent in, in that way. And, um, yeah, and, and, and when you look at the three holidays, and I think there's – I got a Jewish friend of mine. We, we were laughing with one another yesterday because um, Good Friday coincides with the Passover. So it's the Judeo-Christian value system. Um, the Jews, by and large, and the Christians have a little different opinion on Christ. You know, there's kind of a fork in the road. He was quite the prophet and a great human example to exist and, and live his life, or he was a savior. And there's some, um, there's some disagreement there between the Jewish faith and the Christian faith, but the set of Judeo-Christian values of which the West was largely predicated upon is that of um, uh, kindness and human dignity and decency and, and the value of life and a lot of other sorts of things that became extremely political but but i go back to my opinion of good friday and this is why i mean good friday to me is more interesting than easter i can't understand that rev how someone raises from the dead i can't comprehend that i can't begin to fathom that well let me tell you how it went down stop i don't want to hear from you you're a mere mortal i don't want elon musk as smart as he is trying to explain to me the the, the resurrection nobody can explain that i mean when you're dead you're dead that's it it's over is there eternity or is there not? Where do you go for eternity? Where do you don't? I mean, th- th- those are supernatural things that, that we should grapple with because despite having a 150 IQ, Elon Musk has no idea what is in the supernatural. But, but Friday was the human day. It was the day that Mary and Peter and Judas and a lot of other characters that, that were a part of that episode in, in, in world history um, that God put there. 
for a reason. I don't have any idea why God put those people in that situation at that time. I love it when someone says, well, let me explain to you why God chose Joseph and Mary. I don't want you to explain that to me. (laughs) God will explain that to me one day. I don't want to hear from you. Well, I went to theology and seminar and okay, okay, you know more about it than I do. But stop trying to tell me you understand. Uh, You do know uh, the the, the person that believes in in the virgin birth the crucifixion of the resurrection, the person that believes in that, I don't care if you got 140 IQ or, or an 80 IQ, you don't understand it any better than I do. You may be able to remember some of these things more, and you may know some of the cities and the history of the cities because you're smarter uh, than average, but, but you don't understand. Friday is a day we can all understand because we can all put ourselves in that situation. It was not supernatural Romans in a supernatural city doing supernatural things. It was, uh, it was a it was real people doing real things in a real city that changed the world forever. And, and that's why I always, I don't grapple with today. I try to convince myself, and this is again, I don't know, Rev, maybe this is trying to convince myself that I'm not as sinful as I really am, but I've always tried to convince myself that I would have done a little more. You know, if I'd have been there, maybe, maybe I wouldn't have, um, maybe I wouldn't have thrown myself in front of Jesus, but I wouldn't have done what Peter did. I know I wouldn't have done what <laughs> Judas did. You know, Judas took the money and run. There's a song about that too, mm-hmm. about the Steve Miller band, right? right? That's right. Um, so we got Leonard Skinner and Steve Miller band and Jesus, you know, <laughs> right. what, what do you get? I mean, just imagine that. And it's not even six thirty, guys. And we've got Steve Miller, Leonard Skinner and Jesus <laughs> all in the same um, conversation. But, but, you know, I think we can all ponder what we would have done in that certain situation. Um, most of us go to an empty tomb on Sunday morning. Do you know what we say? No. Mm-mm. Uh, no, 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 no. Somebody stole that body. No way in the world. Because people don't raise from the dead. But people did get crucified. And, I mean, it was a part of punishment in, in, the, in, the, you know, in that legal, in the Sanhedrin. And uh, I think one of the most interesting scriptures in the Bible, when Pilate washes his hands. You know, I've asked my pastor, did Pilate... Um, did Pilate ask for forgiveness? And he's always said, there's no accounting of that. I don't know. It's obvious that Pilate was confused, was, was upset, was bothered. I mean, he went through with it because he liked the gig he had. You know, it was a big deal. And to not follow through would have been put, I don't know, put his own um, name at risk, his own place in the hierarchy at risk. But I've asked my pastor before, several pastors, you know, did Pilate, did Pilate, um, ask for forgiveness. And every pastor I've ever talked to says, well, there's no accounting of that. But there's an implication there, you know, when he says, I wash my hands of this man's blood. And anyway, in other words, we're going to do this, but I'm not sure we should. But you know what? They still did because he liked where he was in the pecking order. Let's go to the phone. Our next caller, Breeze. Hey, Breeze. Hey, what's up, buddy? Hey, Breeze. Yeah, you get a lot, you get a lot of these intellectuals and all, and you'll talk this story and they'll... Well, that's just a bunch. That's just a fairy tale. That's just a fairy tale. Until you know what I mean, brother. Until it's just a fairy tale. Until you know things are going really bad, or you daggone got a some a kid that's sick, or you got a daggone you're, you're that old proverbial. There's no such thing as an atheist in the foxhole. That everybody thinks is crazy until. But what I wanted to ask you, kid, um, do you think? Uh, Elon Musk has a chance because, you know, it looks like to me that right now I saw where 
Biden as of, you know, and everybody says that Elon Musk is too smart for him. Well, we ain't been too smart for him for a long time because I keep telling you, they are smart. And they will figure out a way that they can destroy Tesla or threaten to destroy Tesla and the SpaceX because they can't afford to have free speech. You see how he's got a couple of the, uh, I know the Treasury Department, a couple of them are going after him right now. They're launching an investigation. Only did you see that? Security Exchange Commission. Yeah, and I believe they even got the Justice Department in on it. Correct. And, uh, and now also you see where uh, they're going on Twitter is talking about doing the old poison pill thing. They don't even care if they make profit because if they, if they were to sell the bust, it would be a big payday for everybody. But they're willing to bite the bullet and lose all that money for their shareholders and everything else to ensure that the communist Democrats still control speech in this country. Because they cannot have free speech. They cannot have free elections. Communists can't have free speech. Communists can't have free elections. And the, and the Democrat Party cannot have either one. Now, they like to say it's disinformation. Well, let us decide. Let us do the research. And if it is disinformation, prove it is. Just like we prove this stuff's a bunch of bull all the time. You know, like Biden saying nobody would ever catch the virus. And then he said he was a damn professor in Pennsylvania for 15 years. Some crazy crap like that. Leo, let's prove who's telling the truth about it. They don't want that, brother. So my question is, do you think he's going to get it? Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Happy uh, Good Friday. Happy Good Friday. Double positive there. Um, <laughs> normally double negative. There's a double positive on go. a uh, on a Friday That's morning. Good, good Friday morning. Yep. Uh, Breeze and I texted a little bit yesterday about this, um, and he's right. There, there's a lot of things kicking here now that are, um, I don't want to say business jousting, but, but it's similar to that. Uh, one of the most important things said yesterday was the uh, the Saudi prime minister. Excuse me, the Saudi. I don't know if you saw this or not, oh, Red. Yeah. This was, that the, was the most the Saudi prince, the billionaire Saudi. That prince. was the most surprising thing I learned yesterday is that a Saudi prince owns a major part of Twitter sh- uh, stock and sits on the board. Right. Yeah, the Saudi prince sits on the board. What's at up Twitter, with that? Um, and he let's do this and then we'll take a break because I want to go down this road. Um, it, it's a lot. I mean, it, to some degree, it's political jousting. But but it's more business jousting. It's um it's rich guy against rich guy. Um, does Musk have more than the Saudi prince? I don't know. The Saudi prince, uh, his wealth is based on the price of oil and how much they're exporting and all these. Uh, but he said the Saudi prince, and then we'll take a break, Mike. I don't believe that the proposed offer by at Elon Musk comes close to the intrinsic value of Twitter, given its growth prospects. Being one of the largest and long-term shareholders of Twitter, I reject this offer. Now, the British, excuse me, the Saudi prince, Alawid bin Talal al-Saud, is a member of the Twitter board. He is the first to formally deny Musk bid. And uh, Breeze touched on a poison pill. We'll, we'll kind of go down that road. Wall Street Journal had an interesting article on um, the jousting. And, and we'll kind of go there. It's, it, it is a, it's a infatuating story of... Um, what Twitter's willing to do to prevent a hostile takeover. I went back and read some of the 2012 accountings of what Netflix did when Carl Icahn, corporate raider and hostile takeover extraordinaire, um, tried to buy a controlling share of, of uh, Netflix. And um, th- there's some similarities here. Um, 
Or is this a, a you know a guy with ADHD and two hundred seventy four billion dollars? You know, some people believe that that Musk gets incredibly bored with the mundane and has to find some sort of stimuli <laughs> out there. So he's bored with launching rockets into space and building electric cars. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that's mundane. What I mean, ADHD. <laughs> Meets $274 billion. <laughs> this is what you get. Elon Musk. Take a break. Back in a minute. Let's make some random observations this Friday morning. We agree that um, the liberal left is in meltdown when it comes to Elon Musk considering or making a run at buying Twitter, taking it private, uh, or at least taking some, in some iteration, a hostile takeover. I mean, in essence, whether he takes it private or not, he's trying to have control of the company. And it's really about, al you know, moderators and algorithms. I mean, when you listen to Musk talk, if you listen to him for longer than just a sound bite, uh, it's about free speech. He's a free speech absolutist. Um, but, but a lot of his concern is, or a lot of their concern is him being allowed as a board member or an owner to see um, so some of the moderation requirements. In other words, if you are assigned moderator, and you're there to censor, you know, what are they telling you to censor based upon? And then the algorithms. So from his technical world, that's what he's most interested in, um, the, the moderator requirements and the, the algorithms that uh, allow some to be more mainstream than others. Uh, but, but when you really boil it down, um, they love him when he's building electric cars, they don't much care for him when he's advocating for free speech. Wall Street Journal had an interesting article. Uh, Musk said yesterday he was in Canada, in Vancouver, at a, uh, at a TED conference. And, and here's his quote. I want to make sure I get it right. This isn't a way to make money. My strong intuitive sense is that having a public platform that is maximally trusted, and here's the key word, broadly inclusive, is extremely important to the future of civilization. I don't care about the economics at all. I don't know if I buy that. I mean, I don't know if he cares at all about the economics. Um, he's the, he's a guy that doesn't have to worry about what anything costs, but he's still a guy who considers what the economic consequences are. Um, but, but I don't think he's doing this for the money. Now, now, his interest is going to clash with the fiduciary duties of being a board member because Breeze touched on this poison pill. Um, I guess the best question to ask is um, – I mean, th this is what you get when it's obvious you censor. I mean, you got to be more coy about it. And and somebody, I mean, what was there not somebody in leadership at Twitter who saw these boneheaded decisions being made and 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 that they were taking sides in American politics and this culture war that we're all involved in. Um, did, did did nobody in the building see a chance that this would backfire to prohibit? You know, both sides of a debate to, to take place. Um, but Musk is in the process. I mean, he's already filed. And um, and the, the current board, per the, the New York Times, is now arguing or debating or contemplating, better word, whether or not they should use the poison peel um, strategy. And the poison peel strategy means that they would offer current shareholders um, the opportunity to buy more and more shares at a reduced price to dilute the the corporate raider slash activist who's trying to make a run at the company. It's fairly commonplace. It happened, it began back in the 80s when some of these hostile takeovers were more in vogue. Um, Netflix did it in 2012 when Icon, um, kind of a hostile takeover extraordinaire, uh, made a run at Netflix. I think Icon owned 11% of Netflix 
and he was trying to figure out a way to get the majority of board members. I mean, Icon, Musk is not an old hand at corporate takeovers or hostile takeovers. Um, Icon is. And I just wonder if they've not communicated one with another. If Elon Musk was in prison or in jail and had one phone call to make, and this was about, hey, how do I take over Twitter? I would suggest him calling Carl Icahn because Icahn is an 80-year-old man who has a assorted past but a very successful um, resume or successful um, record of being involved in hostile takeovers, uh, making everybody in the world mad, but ultimately getting what he wanted um, to happen. So, um, yeah, Icahn would be the guy that Musk could probably talk to. Um, Icahn's got billions, not $274 billion, but he's got billions, and he's made the majority of those billions um, positioning himself in ways that Musk is aspiring to. But um, – but there, there are a lot of moving targets here. Uh, the, the, the ultimate clash will be, Rev, um, what, what is the board willing to do? Because the company does not belong to the board of directors. The company belongs to the shareholders. The board of directors are voted via proxy or, or, or uh, ownership shares as you know members of the board. But the company's not owned by the board. So when the board directs policy, let's say the board adopts this poison pill philosophy. The, the owners of the company, the shareholders, can sue the board saying, hey, you, you have a fiduciary responsibility to me as a shareholder, and you're acting not in my best interest. You're acting out of a, um, an attempt to stop a guy from taking over a company when it's obviously in our best financial interest for the guy to take over the company. In other words, Bree said it better. They're, they're willing to um, self-immolate, which is sacrifice, uh, rather than you know, make a best financial deal. I mean, they're, they're willing to sacrifice the profit and proceeds and and maybe the long-term value of the company in preference for censorship. They're, they're choosing censorship over everything else. Twitter censors today. If Elon Musk Twitters, the days of censorship are gone. I mean, they're not going to be a company that censors um, conservative opinions or Donald Trump or, or whatever. I mean, they're a lot of political jihadists. I mean, uh, f- fanatical jihadists are allowed to tweet. Uh, but the, the First Amendment protects pornography. I mean, the ca- calls to violence, I think, should be moderated. I think there, there's a role that moderators play in controlling. I mean, I know Facebook has a policy that if you advocate or encourage or, or solicit others to engage in violence, I mean, you're shut down. Okay, that's reasonable. But whether or not Hunter Biden's laptop is authentic, I mean, that's not a call to action. That, that's not, you know, a, an act of violence perpetrated against another human being. That's a debate. I mean, let's debate whether his laptop is real or not. Let's debate what's on the laptop or not. And that was one of the probably the most boneheaded moves they made is when they disallowed a reputable news service, um, their article from being retweeted and in the, um, in the social um, media domain that they, um, that they control. But, but the debate is going to be whether or not and, and I think Breeze is onto something here. Um, who makes the call as to whether Twitter's board, I mean, if, if they self-immolate and they go down this road, somebody, a Bitcoin guy, um, kind of went into great detail yesterday. I mean, he got real specific about it. And he's one of these Musk guys, graduated from Stanford, made a lot of money in Bitcoin, but, but a contrarian, I mean, he's just an absolute contrarian. And, um, and really and truly, this is kind of a, um, a weird um, dynamic. And by that, I mean the Peter Thiel, uh, Elon Musk, Bitcoin investor, or aligning with the America Firster. 
I mean, there's not, there's not a lot they have in common one with another. The rank and file to America Firster just wants Trump back on Twitter. I mean, he doesn't want to be censored if he tries to put something on Facebook or Twitter. But these other guys are kind of playing at a different level than most of us play. But um, but but Twitter is considering a poison pill that will damage the value of the company. I mean, there, there's no doubt about that. Who's going to call them out? Because the board has, once again, a, a legal, it's not a choice you make. The board has a legal and binding fiduciary responsibility to the best interests of the company. But, but instead, it looks like the board is more committed um, to control of the narratives and, and, and whatever the global discourse may be or not. It looks to me like the board is more committed to censorship than they are to fiduciary responsibility they have to the rank-and-file shareholder. The poison peel is a breach. I mean, I'm convinced of that. And this, so Twitter doesn't make any money. Netflix makes a lot of money. I mean, there, there's some arguments that are different in Netflix and Carl Icahn than there are Twitter and Elon Musk. Twitter lost, if I'm not mistaken, a little better than a billion dollars in 2020 and I think about a billion dollars in 2021. The last two years, I mean, they've, they've got, you know, their, their their growth patterns are in de- not in decline, but they're not increasing at the pace of which they expected them to increase. Um, but there is a, the, the, the argument is going to be, can the board of directors implement a poison pill as a, 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 a strategy against Elon Musk taking over Twitter? If they do, is that a breach of their responsibility as a fiduciary of Twitter? It is. There's no doubt about that. But who's going to make that call? In other words, as Bree said, who at DOJ, who at the SCC, not the Southeastern Conference, who at the SCC is going to side with Musk saying, hey, man, this guy's made an offer that has to be seriously considered because it's in the best financial interest of Twitter. The board wants to choose censorship. Let's go to the phone. Here is Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Well, you already know who DOJ and SEC is going to side with. They've opened an investigation on Tesla for regulations, violations, just since Musk has started this. But as far as the fiduciary responsibility, you know, when Twitter started, it was like $19 a share. And then when Trump was voted in president, it went to a high of $77 a share. Now it's back down around, what, 27 28 40 somewhere in there. It was 38 and, before Musk made the offer, and it went up to right, about 42 or 3 right, or 4 Right, right. and he's offered $43 billion, so that that would be against their, their fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders to turn that down. But this this is the fight for free speech, and and that's all Musk wants is to be. Able, if your neighbor is a hateful terrorist, you want to know that. I don't want to silence him. I want to know that he's a hateful terrorist. That way, I can keep my eye on him. Now, I'd rather somebody be able to open their mouth and show me they're an idiot than keep it closed and make me wonder if they're an idiot. So. Musk is all he wants to do is open the the algorithms up and say, okay, this is how we control uh, content. You know, if you're talking about raiding the government and going against the government or killing your neighbor or killing this person, this algorithm is how 
that takes throttles that down. But as far as regular free speech, see, this is the playground of the the, the news people, and they cannot stand to have free speech because they don't want to debate their ideas because they have none. And this is the one thing that why we have to vote out every Democrat on the national stage there is, because if we don't, we're going to lose our free First Amendment rights. Because all you got to do is, is use First Amendment in place of Twitter and, and see what that sounds like. Because that's what this is a fight for. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Now, 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 remember this, guys. I mean, we've had this debate on the show before. Private companies um, are not obligated to the First Amendment. I mean, it's, it is the public domain. That's what Musk is debating. That this, you know, Twitter and Facebook and social media have evolved into the public domain. It is the public square of ideas. It's where we debate one another. Um, Joe nailed it. I mean, when when your ideas suck, the last thing you want to do is be forced to defend them. I mean, if you've got really bad ideas, and I'm talking about the green energy deal and build back better and, you know, transgenderism and gender fluidity, if your ideas are horrible and terrible, the last thing you want is a form of which you're forced to defend those ideas. That's the strategy of the Democrat in America today. The liberal Democrats' biggest ally is censorship. Their ideas are terrible. Their governing philosophies are dangerous. But they're asking to not be forced to debate and defend those ideas. I love debating my values. I love defending what I believe in. I think the things I I believe in are worth defending and easily defended. I accept the challenges from the left. Bring it on. But let's talk about taxes. Let's talk about, you know, a free speech. Let's talk about censorship. Let's talk about military intervention. Let's talk about all these things. I'm quite comfortable in where I stand on the issues of the time. And I'm easy and, and ready to defend and argue and debate and, and, and get emotional at times about it. I mean, I welcome, I embrace, I enjoy that. I mean, that's what we do four hours every single morning. We don't censor anybody on this show. Bring it on. I mean, that's the American way. But, but Twitter and social media and the media in general have morphed into this, um, this safeguard, that this gatekeeper mechanism that, that basically protects these idiotic ideas that the American political left has from any sense of debate. They don't have to defend these crazy things that they believe in. Take a break. Back in a minute. Now, it does seem that Twitter is willing to sacrifice themselves um, instead of giving up their censorship programs. Uh, Musk tweeted yesterday. Imagine that. Musk tweeted um, yesterday. <laughs> if the current Twitter board takes actions contrary to shareholder interest, they would be breaching their fiduciary duty. The liability they would thereby assume would be titanic in scale. I mean, that's his words um, in, a, in a press release, and I think it was tweeted um, somewhere in the Twitter sphere. Um, so you've got these. Um, see, for a long time, conservatives believed the way to, uh, I don't know, Rev, get after some of the moderating. And really and truly, if you listen to uh, Musk, and I've listened to him for a year or so talk about Twitter, it's always been um what are the requirements of the moderator and what sorts of algorithms are implemented to prioritize speech to allow or disallow certain things to be discussed and what gets first in line and what kind of tags along at the rear um that is what they're most protective of i don't think twitter would deny that they censor i don't think twitter would deny that they're liberal i mean their headquarters is in san francisco by god 
You know, I mean, uh, 99.9% of the political contributions made by Twitter employees were made to Democrats. In the last election cycle, uh, the point one lost his job. He got fired. He made a mistake, wrote a check to the wrong guy. <laughs> and, um, and they got rid of him for making that fatal mistake. So we know they're liberal. And we know they support censorship. Now, now we can debate why they support censorship. I think they support censorship because they know the ideas and notions they believe in can't stand the heat. I mean, they can't defend some of these crazy things they believe in today. But um, so, so historically, our plan has been to address Section 230, to require these private companies to implement some uh, methods of neutrality. Now, that's very abstract. I mean, that's hard to really quantify and get your What is neutral? I mean, what is neutrality? I mean, every time Mike tweets something, I got to tweet something. If he does twice, I got to find my buddy to tweet. You know, neutrality is a hard thing to, to get about. And that's where reasonable conservatives and practical conservatives have said, hey, philosophically, I'm with you. But how do we define neutrality? How do we ever get there? Um, because it is a private enterprise. And the First Amendment requirement of the public space does not apply to private space. Now we got a, you know, the modern day cowboy. I mean, in my youth, cowboys wore, excuse me, yeah, they, they wore um, dusters and uh, cowboy hats. Now they wear Italian suits and, you know, jeans with shirts not tucked <laughs> in. But Musk is a modern day cowboy. No doubt about it. Back in a minute. Let's go to conspiracy theory you. You ready? I mean, let, let's take yeah. it, let's take an advanced course in conspiracy theory at the University of Conspiracy <laughs> Theorists United. Okay. Um, I'm ready. Let's imagine. I mean, Joe said something. Breeze said something. I think Breeze's suggestion was, are they going to let Elon Musk buy Twitter? Uh, I think the question, the only word in that sentence that matters is they. Are they going to let Elon Musk buy Twitter or not? He's not talking about the shareholders. You know he's not. He's not talking about um, the Twitter board. He's talking about the SEC, the DOJ, the government agencies. So let's play this out to the end. I mean, let, let's do this for argument's sake. Um, I've always accused liberals of governing in a simulator. You know, there is no real plane crash because they're not really flying a, a flying a plane. It seems to me that Washington operates fundamentally in that way. Um, there are no consequences to printing, you know, seven or eight trillion dollars of, of money. We'll just get out of the simulator and we'll pretend we didn't do it. And we'll try to do better the next time. Well, I mean, you and I live with the, the rest and residue of those reckless and careless decisions. But let's play this out to the extreme. I've got about four or five articles here that I've kind of, um, I don't know, intertwined one with another, that, that would lead you to believe that there is a lot of um, <sighs> nefarious behavior behind the scenes by people that we're tro told to trust. Um, hold on to the Musk argument for a minute. Will they let him do this? I mean, the Twitter investor is looking for a return, correct? If the Twitter investor thinks that $54 a share is a good return, then it's a done deal. But... Joe and Breeze were insinuating that maybe, just maybe, there are um, organized forces, not not organic, not not you know just um, uh, a rogue investor or a um, you know a, a, the the prince, the Saudi prince, and Musk get into this you know rich guy contest. You know, I own more than you own. I have more money than you have. I'll I'll control Twitter. No, I'll control Twitter. But lying in the weeds is the SEC and the DOJ, and then the government. I mean, the federal government in some capacity, in some way, shape, or form, 
So remember when Dr. Coppin was here and I said, um, oh, it was only his laptop. And then it wasn't his laptop. And then it, well, it was his laptop, but it was Russian, Russian disinformation. Um, now it's no, it was a disinformation, but Joe had nothing to do with it. So, um, something is up. I mean, we know that about the, uh, the Hunter Baden laptop, but, but let's take our eyes, not, not off that laptop for a second, but let's play this out to the extreme. Let's, let's pretend that we're producing a movie because we know these things never happen in real life. Let's just pretend that we're in charge of a, um, a blockbuster, highly funded, um, well-financed, and we've got the, the best leading man in, in Hollywood and the best leading woman in Hollywood, and we're going to put together a, um, a storyline of the government being completely and totally, not just corrupt, but complicitly corrupt one with another. Um, that these things are not random. These things are well-designed. They are well-orchestrated. Twitter was working with um, the DOJ and the SEC to stop Musk. Twitter was working with uh, the DOJ and the Attorney General's office when they decided to basically tamp down the New York uh, Post article about Hunter Biden's laptop. I mean, we know that doesn't happen because our bureaucrats are to be trusted and our public institutions are, are the, the safeguards of democracy. I mean, isn't that what we're told to the Trump voter? When, when the Trump voter questions um, certain things about our government, we're told that these institutions have held and they're the safeguards of democracy. And, and how dare you insult or impugn the integrity <laughs> right. of these people who and, are in and charge? Trump is the threat sure, to democracy. I mean, Trump, and, I, and I've heard a lot of academics. I mean, I've had local academics, uh, a couple of college professors in particular, not the two you're thinking about, two others that I bump into on occasion, and they'll talk about the reckless and careless nature of which we go about fanning the flames of um, political discontent in a way that leads people down these conspiracy theory rabbit holes. Um, one, of the, one of the things I'd love to know, I don't know how we get there, but one of the, one of the things I'd love to know um, is how... In October of 2020, uh, a month before the election, 51 of our former national security officers wrote a letter, signed a letter in their official capacity. Um, and here, here's the sentence that really gets me, because this is when you really believe in conspiracy theories. Well, when, you, when you see the coordination and the complicity and the, the left hand well aware of what the right hand, knowing the private sector, the worst thing is when the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing, left hand doesn't know what the right is doing. I mean, there's normally an economic price you pay as a result of that. But but in government, um, it, it's different. That There's a complacency here. And, and once again, we're playing this out to the extreme. So there's a sentence in this public statement on the Hunter Biden emails that was signed October of 2020, imagine a month before the election. And the one sentence that really caught my attention is this. I've actually got it highlighted. Here's the letter, the official letter in October of 2020. Um, perhaps most important, each of us believe deeply that American citizens should determine the outcome of elections, not foreign governments. All of us agree with the founding fathers' concern about the damage that foreign interference in our politics can do to our democracy. The folks within our government today are far more dangerous than outside forces. I want to say that again. Uh, if you're, if you, you know, in, in some churches, people take notes. You know, when the pastor says something, my wife's a note taker, and she'll make a note every now and then when the pastor says something. I'm like, okay, I got to be careful because that 
might have had something to do with me. Um, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? There'll be something said in the sermon. And, and my interpretation, she writes a note, I'm going like, oh, hell. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that's that's me uh, that they're talking about there now. But anyway, w- when you look at, um, so, so it's signed by uh, Jim Clapper, former national director or former director of national security, Mike Hayden, former director of Central Intelligence Agency, Leon Panetta, uh, former director of Central Intelligence Agency, but now it's former Secretary of Defense as well. But now he's the owner of the the proprietor of the Panetta Institute. Hmm. Yeah, Leon yes. Panetta has an institute now because he was um, the director of CIA and the former Secretary of Defense. John Brennan, um, former director of Central Intelligence Agency, former White House Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor, Thomas Finger, uh, Rich, Rich Leggett, Josh McLaughlin, Michael Morrell, Mike Vickers, Doug Wise. Uh, you wouldn't know most of these names. I think the high water mark are the most known names are Clapper, Hayden, Brennan, and Panetta. I mean, that, those are kind of household names if you watch CNN or Fox News or kept up with the with the Trump campaign. But but their argument is that we had to do this to stop the Hunter Biden email story from becoming mainstream because it's Russia disinformation. Why are those people not forced to explain themselves when they issued a, a on-the-record letter in their former official capacities, they didn't say um, Jim Clapper, graduate of Harvard, class of 1974. They didn't say John Mike Hayden, um, University uh, Yale University, class of 1969. Leon Panetta. No, I mean these people did it um, with their bureaucratic bona fides um, in tow. So, so why has any? Why have these people not been forced? at any point in time recently to explain why they believed that it made any sense to make a public statement in October. These folks were trying to change the outcome of an election more than the Russians ever had. And these are the very people that we've entrusted these government agencies to. And I would argue, Ref, today, the person in charge of national security, the person in charge of the CIA or the FBI, they're no different. They just have different names. So that's the great conspiracy theory. The conspiracy theory is not whether or not Russia is trying to influence outcome uh, of the outcome of elections in America or Israel. Or of course they are. I mean, foreign governments always play hands in certain ways. Our government may have even played a role one time in well, some I mean, foreign of election course, or I mean, two. Obama went to Israel and spoke against Netanyahu, trying to convince the Israelis to not vote Netanyahu back in office. The biggest threat to our democracy is within. And the very people who don't want Elon Musk to buy Twitter are the very people that won't, I mean, they simply don't want your opinion to be entertained at the, in the realm of debate. We're not going to have those debates. So, so the public statement by, by very important people within our federal government, and, and this, this is just an interesting paragraph to me, all of us agree with the founding father's concern about the damage that foreign interference in our politics can do to our democracy. You, my friends, have done a greater disservice to our democracy by your antics and your attitudes and your, I guess, allowing yourself to be. It's almost like these people are willing to sacrifice any good work they may or may not ever have done within our federal government in the name of making sure a certain candidate or a certain group of supporters don't get their way in changing. Um, and it's kind of a paradigm shift. I mean, if Trump got elected the second time, it's game over for the status quo. 
I mean, they've got to really go back to their village and, you know, uh, revisit the way they operate, the way they do business. Now, I would argue, Rev, they're probably more empowered than they've ever been because they did involve themselves in an election and they did um, push a, a feeble old man in cognitive decline across the finish line. And they were successful. Sure. Absolutely, they were. They were not successful in stopping Russian interference. They were successful in bureaucratic interference within our government election. Mm. If we believe that's real, and I do, then what do we do about it? But if we believe that the SEC will figure out a way to stop Elon Musk from buying Twitter, and we believe that Clapper, Brennan, Panetta um, were not motivated because of, of, of maybe or maybe not Russia disinformation, but simply to stop a guy from getting elected that was ushering in a bunch of deplorables who wanted to see government work in a fundamentally different sort of way that was not to their advantage. The last thing these people want is change. They have built a model. The model serves them unbelievably well. It screws you, but they don't care. But they could care less about what happens to you or we, the people, as long as these people get their way, as long as the Panetta Institute is continued to be funded, as long as Jim Clapper is continued to be revered as a, um, a national intelligence. I mean, the guy lied on, uh, under oath. What happens to any of us if we lie under oath? Jail. Sure. I mean, it's perjury. It's a serious offense. We know Clapper lied under oath because he came back and apologized for lying under oath. What happened to Jim Clapper? Nothing. John Brennan has been fundamentally dishonest in his accountings of what happened in the 2020 election or not. So, so our problem is not the Russians. Our problem, and I think it goes to Twitter, our problem is the failure to have an honest and sincere and, and consequential debate about the issues or ideas. And Twitter is an example because they are, as Musk says, um, the the most recent public square that the majority of people in America have these debates and discussions. I mean, Twitter's usage dwarfs CNN viewership or Fox News viewership. I mean, Elon Musk has 81 million followers. Donald Trump had about 80 million followers. There are liberals that have 80 million. I think Obama has about 80 million followers. Tucker has 5 million viewers. 3 million viewers. Nobody on CNN has a million viewers. So it is the um, the public square uh, of political thought and debate. And, and we're not allowing a debate. So, so when you think about these conspiracy theories and you think about Panetta and Clapper and Brennan and Obama and, and some of the Obama acolytes and, and Dorsey at Twitter and Zuckerberg at Facebook, it, it, it's a conspiracy. It is an absolute conspiracy. And to me, you've got to be a bigger conspiracy theorist to not believe it's a conspiracy. I mean, seriously, when you really think about it, that, that Clapper was genuine and, and, and Twitter's board is going to do the right thing, that, that is a bigger, I mean, if you believe in that, you believe in a bigger conspiracy theory than I do in believing that all of these people are complicit and, and intertwined and working together to make sure that the sanctity of the status quo is forever protected. Let's go to the phone. Steve in Florence. Good morning, Steve. Hey, morning. Um, in a way, um, Elon's already kind of won. Either he can get the company, they'll sell it to him, 
or he causes them to fight within, then, you know, lawsuits start going. We're already talking about, like, who owns shares in it. I didn't know a Saudi prince had controlling interest in the company. That's kind of weird, but um, yeah, he also has his Skylink, I think, his internet service that he's doing. Correct. So any device, any device that connects to that, he can see how, you know, data out of that device and see how bad they're being censored. And Trump's doing his own thing with his message board that's kind of like a clone of Twitter, I guess. Um, is Elon going to have any, um, you know, stock in that when that comes out? I don't know, Steve. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. It's kind of an interesting, yeah. I mean, has Elon won already or not? Um, no. Because if Twitter is not taken over by Elon Musk, they'll revert back. It's not like, hey, that was a close one. We probably need to engage in, in more spirited debate. We probably need to stop censoring. We probably need to change uh, some of the moderation provisions and some of the algorithms. Uh, no, that's not going to happen. But but all of this plays one into another. I mean, it really does. If you stick with me and you try to grasp, I mean, it takes some grappling. There's no doubt about it. It takes some some scratching your head, some thinking through this. If if the Republicans win the House and Senate, you know the first thing I'd do? Mm. I'd march those 51 former intelligence officials who published these these unsubstantiated claims on the reporting or not on the Hunter Biden laptop as Russian disinformation, and I would make them reveal their sources. I mean, th- th- this is not— Do they have sources? No. Well, I mean, they've got other bureaucrats. Yeah. That they, that it's a cabal. It's a cartel, right. guys. We're governed by a cartel. I'm serious. And their declaration was repeated by— the man who is now the president of the United States during the debate to defend himself. Well, here's what I want to know. Here's what I want to know. I mean, think about that. Of the 51 officials who had unbelievably prominent positions within our government. I mean, Clapper was an, a very important person. Brennan, Panetta, um, Hayden. I mean, these people are instrumental in our national security. Um, I want to know. I want them to be forced to disclose who they communicated with during the drafting of this letter, um, during the editing of this letter. Um the promoting, CNN promoted, MSNB promoted, New York Times promoted, Washington Post promoted. Remember when it was news that 51 former national security advisors to presidents and government agencies had agreed that this is more than likely Russian disinformation. Who did they counsel with? Who put them up to that? Did the, did the DNC or the Biden campaign or the Clintons or the Obama team um what, what sorts of, of documents could be produced? What sort of communications were made? Did they just randomly wake up one day and say, hey, you know, I believe, have you seen this Hunter Biden laptop story? It sure sounds like Russia disinformation to me. And they've gotten away with it. They've skated. They've walked. For, how are we a democracy when 51 former intelligence officers can publish unsubstantiated claims and nobody ask a single question to any of the 51? Because they're in on the fix. If the Republicans were in charge, I'll tell you this, if the Republicans were in control of the House and Senate, you couldn't have drugged those 51 to sign that paper because they know they would have had hearings. That's the conspiracy here, guys. It's a political party running interference one for another to stop the notion of truth being in the mainstream. But that's what Musk has argued about Twitter. How do you get to the truth? I mean, if Rev and I have a disagreement, 
And he, he, he's got one version of the truth. I've got a version of the truth. If we never debate, you know what I believe? Forever my version is the truth. He believes forever his version of the truth. But if Rev and I can put our dukes down long enough to, to cordially and responsibly debate one another, we'll get to the bottom of it. You know where the truth will probably be? Somewhere between my end and his end of the story. But, but we're not allowing that to happen. And the reason, And this is much deeper than Musk and Twitter. These are 51 national security advisors that made up stuff out of thin air. Why did they do it? To make sure a guy didn't get elected president of the United States. How in the hell do we still consider ourselves a democracy when 51 former intelligence officers publish what we now know emphatically is unsubstantiated claims and nobody asks a single question of these 51 people? You know what they by and large gotten? A pat on the back. It worked. Yeah, mission accomplished. You stopped that. I mean, that, that, that degree of monolithism is, I mean, that, that's dangerous, guys. We can't go down that road. I mean, even the liberals have to believe that, that if you get a, a media and, and a bureaucracy dominated by such group thought, such group thinking, that's a dangerous place to be. To believe your political adversary has no business involving him or herself in the political discourse is as undemocratic as it gets, but that's what they want. And the people at Twitter are telling you that's what they want. The people at Twitter have a chance to make a real sound financial decision or to sacrifice themselves in the name of censorship. And they're going to try to figure out a way, whether it's a poison pill where you dilute Musk shares or not, they're going to choose censorship over financial profit and proceeds. They're going to breach the fiduciary responsibility those board members have as, quote, unquote, fiduciaries of a private enterprise in the name of disallowing people they disagree with to bring their ideas and thoughts uh, to the stage. Let's take a break. We'll come back and take a call. If you want to play this all the way out to the end, the 51 national security agents, I mean, we all expect, I mean, how many of us out there uh, would take more seriously a letter signed by 51 former intelligence heads of the CIA, the Department of Defense, National Security Agency, uh, and many, many others like that? I mean, when Rachel Maddow says it, we kind of chuckle because we know what she's up to. When, when, uh, when Wolf Blitzer says it, we kind of chuckle. But, but a lot of people, when 51 former intelligence heads and officers of the CIA, you know, when they write a letter, I mean, we know the polling now, 16% say that they would have probably voted differently had they known um, so, some of the information about Hunter Biden's laptop and possible involvement of Joe Biden. But, but the world we live in today, guys, and this is a dangerous, dangerous-ass place we've gotten ourselves, is the disallowance of free-minded and fair debate. I mean, that, that is unbelievably dangerous. When we get ourselves to a place where, where Twitter becomes, let's argue that Twitter is the, the, the trading place of ideas and debate in America today. I don't know if it is or not, but let's say it is. Let's say Musk is right, and this is the future. This is where we're headed. We're not going to debate things any longer at the grocery store, the bar. We're going to do this on Twitter. Yeah, and, de facto town square, yeah, as he called and, it. And, and, and Twitter has these moderators, and Twitter has these algorithms that disallow free and fair debate. How do we operate as a democracy? We're done. I mean, we're done. 
I mean, the, the country's done. It's not that we who believe in certain conservative values. The country's done when, when people who believe things similar to what we believe are not allowed to express themselves for fear of censorship. We're done. And the 51 national security officers of, of the varying agencies, they signed up. They basically said, yes, censorship is okay to get our way. It's a bigger conspiracy theory to believe it's not a conspiracy theory. Let's go to the phone. Here's Barry and Sherrall. Good morning, Barry. Hey, good morning, guys. On a good Friday. Hey, uh, Ken, the fourth branch of the government is the intel community and social media. So, I, you know, my belief is Twitter's probably run, ran by the government a little bit, uh, server-wise, you know, uh, getting data, controlling so, I mean, what do we do, Ken, is, is the question. I'm going to tell you what we do. Hey, Barry, I'm going to tell you what we do. We pull as hard as we can for Elon Musk. He may be a Absolutely. transhumanist. He may be an atheist. There may be a lot of things about Musk you find uh, very odd. But he's our cowboy right now. I mean, he's the only hope we have right now. Something may change tomorrow, but right now, he's our guy, and we must invest in him as much as we can to help him be successful. Absolutely, Ken, and, and that's where I was going. I, I mean, and like you said, we don't agree with everything he does. And, and you're, who are you? I don't agree with what all my parents do or what my best friend does. But but you got to go with him. He he's our guy right now. Now it's gonna be it's gonna be it's gonna be tough on him because he's getting ready to have everything come against him right now. Every single thing is getting ready to come against him. So as, as Christians, we need to lift him up, even though he's not a believer lift him up in prayer, and uh, it, it's coming. I, I'm pulling for him, though, Ken. Y'all have a good uh, Easter weekend, guys. Thank you, Barry. Appreciate that. Same to you. Happy Easter to all who are listening. And um, and I think Must really understands. And, and see, guys, if I got on the board, I wouldn't know what to do. I mean, would you, Rev? I mean, if you got on the board, I mean, if you were on the board at Twitter, I mean, I, w- I would probably mm-hmm. say, hey, can somebody tell me about this censorship? I mean, I host a two-bit radio show in South Carolina, and a lot of my folk – believe that you guys disallow fair debate, that you censor, that you your, your, your moderator provisions or your moderating requirements are unfair and, and you know, imbalanced toward those who believe things similar to the majority of, of South Carolinians who listen to my show. And, and we believe that, but I don't know where to look there. I don't have any idea how to account for an algorithm. I mean, you could show me an algorithm and I'd say, okay, is that vanilla or chocolate? <laughs> I mean, I don't have any idea how to look and critique and handicap. He does. I mean, he has the brain to do that. I mean, that, that, that's his skill set. Um, I doubt Musk could uh, plant wheat. I doubt Musk could uh, build a truck bed. But he can sort out an algorithm, and he can, I mean, that's his world. His world is tech. Um, Tesla's not a car company. Tesla's a technology company. SpaceX isn't a, a space travel company. SpaceX is a technology company. I mean, he, he says that. I mean, you're trying to disrupt space travel. You're trying to change the auto industry. But but the the I don't know the mindset of Tesla is more of a technology company that, than it is an automobile company. I mean it, it probably will evolve one day. I mean I think I've heard Musk say that I hope Tesla grows up one day to be an auto company. But right now it's a um I mean it's really a a technology company that makes money off selling green energy credits. I mean that's kind of sort of what it is today. But but they make cars and I've heard Musk say I hope it grows up one day to be an auto company, to be a legitimate competitor. 
to Ford and GM and Toyota and Nissan. Why? To make them better. I mean, that's, that's the marketplace. That's the free market. That's what happens in the free market. Now, now going back to Twitter for a second, um, the, one, uh, the one defense Twitter has is, it, it, I mean, the, the First Amendment protects, whether you like it or not, pornography. It protects uh, jihadist propaganda. It protects um, harassment. I mean, if you want to harass somebody, if you want to insult somebody, that's protected in the First Amendment. But but that's the government regulation. The private sector can regulate free speech under current law unless we change Section 230. The private businesses can stifle free speech if they um, do. I mean, if they choose to. Now, we believe that the moderators at Facebook, the moderators at uh, Twitter, the moderators and some of these other um, less influential media sites um, uh, ban, you know, calls to violence. I mean, you know, maybe they don't. I mean, didn't the guy that got stopped or the shot the people in, I mean, we found out now some of his um, some of his Facebook and Twitter pronouncements have been um, very violent in nature. You know, white people need to die. Of the Brooklyn uh, subway well, He's kind of a black nationalist, and a lot of his comments have been that white people need to die, uh, need to kill a bunch of white people. Um, Facebook let him put that on there um, and continue to put that on there. So apparently um, they're selective in who they allow to um, basically argue on behalf of violence in, in some weird sort of way. Um, my point is this. Um, did anybody in the building in San Francisco at Twitter not realize how political they'd become and how culturally biased they'd become. Of course they did. Absolutely they did. Nobody, that doesn't surprise They're probably pretty anybody. proud of themselves. Sure they are. You better believe they are. They think they've done the Lord's work. Despite not believing in the Lord by and large, they think they've done the Lord's work and they think there's more work to be done. They've not completely um, wiped us from the planet Earth yet. Those of us who believe in traditional marriage and believe in or don't believe in gender fluidity. In other words, we believe when a boy is born, he's a boy. When a girl is born, she's a girl. We believe that men should compete in athletic endeavors against men and women should compete against other women. I mean, that, those are weird things that we believe, and they've not ridded the planet of all of us yet, so there's still a reason to censor. There's still a reason to control information. And when Musk gets in the room, he understands the moderators. He understands the algorithms. That's the great danger. Now, now Barry asked an interesting question. I think I may have asked it. What can we do to help Elon Musk? I don't know. Buy Tesla stock? I mean, if you invest, buy SpaceX? Uh, buy Twitter stock? Maybe, maybe there needs to be a, an international movement of those who believe that Twitter censors in the name of liberalism. Um, let's get together and buy a bunch of Twitter stock. What happens? Let, let me ask you this. This will be a, a real interesting exercise to do. It's nothing more than an academic exercise, but it's kind of interesting. What if Musk is successful? What do we want Twitter to look like? I mean, let's say, let's say the SEC tries to stop but can't. The DOJ tries to stop but can't. Um, the Saudi prince who's on the Twitter board tries to stop but can't. Dorsey, uh, the founder of Twitter, can't stop. And, and Musk is successful. He buys Twitter for 54 bucks a share. He's out of $43 billion, uh, but he owns Twitter. What, what needs to happen to Twitter to give us a, a more fair shake at the equation? Because I made the argument uh, Monday 
after reading some of the CNN Plus numbers. Um, CNN Plus is attracting fewer than 10,000 viewers a night. I mean, there was an anticipated $1 billion investment in an entity, a media entity, that, that engages fewer than 10,000 people. We don't know how many of you are out there. We know it's more than that in our listening audience. I mean, just imagine that. Now, fewer than 10,000. Fewer than 10,000 means it could be zero. That there's some internal emails at CNN that, that say they believe it's somewhere around 5,400. So, so Chris Wallace got mad with Tucker Carlson, left Fox to go to CNN Plus um, with the notion, and, and listen, the business model is built on people won't watch Jake Tapper for nothing, but they may pay five ninety nine a month. <laughs> It's one of those say that out loud. Yeah, I moments. mean, Wolf Blitzer gets seven hundred thousand viewers a night. Maybe if we ask somebody to pay five ninety nine, the you know more will sign up and watch. I mean, it's an absurd. And they said that they predicted in the, in the potential one billion dollar investment, they predicted twelve to fifteen million viewers in a four year period of time. Well, I mean, there's already a miscalculation that's being addressed internally at CNN. It's absurd. And the point I try to make is. When does CNN stop becoming a media company and instead becomes not just a propaganda arm, but a lobbying entity? Should CNN be forced to register as a lobbyist? Should MSNBC be forced to register as a lobbyist? Should the New York Times be forced to register as a People lobbyist? People on the other side would say, should Fox? Well, I mean, but, but, but stick with me for a second. Okay. Fox has a, a viewership of uh, more than CNN, MSNBC combined. So Fox right. is a legitimate news enterprise. There are enough people watching Fox to justify Pfizer advertising a vaccine. And here's True. where we get to that gray area. Stick with me for a second. So Pfizer needs you to be vaccinated because they're in the, in the business of public safety or profitability. I'll let you decide <laughs> what they're in the business of. I've made my mind up. Um, <laughs> Pfizer wants to make a buck. And the third and fourth booster, fifth and sixth booster, seventh and eighth booster, as long as you're gullible enough and Fauci's stupid enough. And, well, Fauci's not stupid enough. We're stupid enough to believe what Fauci says when he says, go get the next booster, go get the next booster and the next booster and the next. But, but the point I'm trying to make is Pfizer can sit down with their shareholders and say, hey, we ran, you know, $3 million worth of advertising on Fox News because they have 5 million nightly viewers. There's a big audience there. So our product is being peddled in front of a, a large universe of people. But when Pfizer, when the Pfizer board sits down, if Musk or Carl Icahn were on the board at Pfizer, Musk would probably ask, or I know Icahn would, why are we advertising on CNN? Because CNN doesn't have any viewers, but they turn an amazing profit. The reason they turn an amazing profit is they have chosen to be a lobbying enterprise. In other words, Pfizer buys advertising on CNN because CNN does the rest of the work for them. The Pfizer ad is followed by Don Lemon encouraging, pleading with everybody to go get vaccinated. The 700,000 people that watch the national um, news broadcast. I mean, imagine that. A, 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 a primetime network, a primetime cable show um, attracting less than a million viewers. I mean, that's something like, I think, home makeover. I think I read where a home makeover on A&E had more viewers than Don Lemon. Um, one of these impractical jokesters uh, on the Discovery Channel or something had about 825,000 viewers, and Don Lemon had fewer than that. Wolf Blitzer had a fewer, a little bit fewer than, um, than Lemon because people who watch CNN want to make sure they're not racist, so they watch the black guy 
instead of the old crusty white guy. I mean, that's just kind of the way they self-calculate and, uh, and hold themselves accountable in the name of, um, of racism or uh, whatever the issue may be. But do you see where I'm, where I'm headed? So Pfizer is not a smart investment for Pfizer to advertise on a network that has fewer than a million viewers. Unless so what else that are they ne- paying for? Unless that network agrees to be their lobbying arm. Unless that network agrees, whether it makes sense or not, whether that network, Pfizer goes to, to CNN and says, hey, you don't have a lot of viewers, but we'll advertise. We'll advertise as much on your network. In fact, we'll advertise more on your network than we do on Fox, despite Fox having five times the viewers, because you're on our team. And you'll encourage, you'll almost demand. You'll have Fauci on every night if we ask you to. You'll have the CDC guidelines on every night if we ask you to. That's where we are in American political media. The only, the only news I read in the mainstream that, that I don't, I mean, I honestly, I look at the Wall Street Journal and I say, okay, what, are they up to something? There's no doubt the New York Times is up to something. There's no doubt the Washington Post is up to something. I mean, uh, imagine the world we live in where everybody gets their panties in a wad when Musk tries to buy Twitter, but nobody has any problem at all with then richest man in America, Jeff Bezos, buys the only newspaper in our nation's capital. Nobody had any problem with Bezos buying the Washington Post. Everybody on the left has a problem with Elon Musk buying Twitter, and I think Barry nailed it. He's our guy. He's our cowboy. He ain't Roy Rogers. He ain't John Wayne. He doesn't have a leather vest and a gun on his side, but he's the modern-day equivalency to a cowboy, and he's our cowboy and whatever we can do to help this transhumanism, atheist, you know, uh, ADHD, multi-multi-billionaire on this single event, on this single issue, we need to be pulling for him with everything we have. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Got a lot of polling data here that we could get into. One of the interesting nuggets of information yesterday, um, kind of a giddy day for me, Donald Trump, it's rumored that is going to endorse um, J.D. Vance in the Ohio Senate race. Oh, he endorsed the other guy. Well, he kind of, sort of did. Um, I, I don't. This, that's probably been one of the most interesting races, and will be one of the most competitive races. Um, Josh Mandel's at about thirty-three percent. J.D. Vance and Matt Dolan, and, and I think Mike Gibbons, if I'm not mistaken, is the other guy. They're all at about fifteen to nineteen percent. But Mandel was the guy that was perceived to have Trump support. And because of that perception, he was far ahead of the field. Um, in fact, he'd run around saying, I'm Trump's guy, I'm Trump's guy, I'm Trump's guy. Well, when there's recordings of J.D. Vance saying very unkind and uncomplimentary things about Donald Trump, but, but we hear, and I have a pretty good source here, that, um, that by the first of next week, Donald Trump will have endorsed J.D. Vance and that number, what, 15, 16, 17%, you know, where does it go from there? Don't have any idea. Um, but Josh Mandel is arguing, doesn't matter. I've got a 19-point lead. Um, Trump's endorsement has weight, but it's not determinative, you know, when it comes to who wins or, or not. Um, now, a spokesperson for Trump yesterday would not comment. Somebody reached out to Save America. Might have been, uh, might have been Fox News reached out to Save America um, because nobody at CNN has the number. Nobody at MSNBC or the New York Times or Washington Post has the number to Save America. So it had to be Fox News or talk radio who reached out to Save America, and they um, they basically declined comments. But there's some rumor 
and scuttlebutt out there that Donald Trump in the next several days is going to endorse J.D. Vance. Um, now, is that because he wants to help J.D. Vance at this point for whatever reason? Or does he think J.D. Vance is going to win? He wants to be well, I mean, attached to the winner. The, 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 the silver bullet that J.D. Vance has is the Peter Thiel money is still in the bank. They've only spent about a million of the $10 million in the bank. Um, you can do a lot of things with a campaign if you've got $9 million worth of checks to write. Trust me. A lot of people can get elected with $9 million worth of wind in their sales. Back in a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. So Elon Musk and I have one thing in common and one thing. I said earlier this morning, he's a guy with ADHD and $274 billion. Now, I got ADHD. I just don't have $274 billion. Somebody asked me one day, what would I do if I won the half-billion-dollar lottery? I said, here's my deal. If I won $20 million, I'd go to the beach and you'd never hear another word out of me. You wouldn't know if I was alive or dead. But if I won a half billion, I wouldn't go anywhere. I would dig in and I'd sell my soul to every Uh-oh. every political issue I believed in, every candidate I liked or didn't like. I would be the, the I would be Elon Musk in a weird way uh, with political activism and involvement. Now, now once again, um, a half a billion dollars is enough to fundamentally change the way a lot of things are done. Um, 10 or 20 million is enough to go to the beach and not worry about anything. Buy me a boat, grow me a beard down in my belly. I would say smoke a little weed, but that's against the law, and I'm Baptist, and we don't do anything uh, like that. So I drink beer, maybe drink a few beer and uh, and enjoy life. But, uh, hey, we have a standing uh, invitation to our, our delegation here, and I want to do this. Um, I'm trying to set aside a period of time every week for our local officials, and by that I mean – um, I mean, all these guys are local. Some just do their work in, in Columbia. Others do it in the city hall or, or county um, council chamber. And uh, Sumter, Orangeburg, we're going to try to really um, give you, our listeners, an opportunity to engage and interact with these folks. We've had um, a kind of sort of spirited debate about magistrates and judges and how they should be elected or, or not. Jay Jordan touched on that. Representative Jordan was here last uh, Friday, and he touched on that. Representative Lowe. I uh, was here the the Friday before that, and um, I don't think you were here last Friday. No, he, he took a he took a uh, pass last uh, Friday morning, but he's back with us this morning. Philip Lowe, Representative Lowe, is here, and um, and and we'll kind of um, we'll take calls. I don't think Philip minds at all. I'm um, taking calls, and we'll um, we'll kick the political can down the road. But but Representative Lowe, one thing that I've heard a lot of is the the county's flush with money, the city's flush with money, the state's flush with money. What in the world are they going to do with all this money? Um, the federal government with the American Rescue Plan, the CARES Act, and all these other sorts of things, um, you guys have a lot of different opinions up there, but but income tax cuts or income tax refunds have been one thing I've heard talked about. What is your opinion of what the state should do with, with the excess funds it has? Thanks for having me again, Ken. Um, so the House version of the budget that we passed allowed for an income tax reduction. And we've been kind of competing with this concept that North Carolina only has about a, a 5% income tax while we have a 7 I mean, the truth is the adjusted gross income that you're taxed from is totally different. South Carolina allows all the federal tax deductions, while North Carolina allows none. So the effective tax rate of South Carolina is currently actually lower than the 5% that's in North Carolina because we already allow those federal tax deductions. So that began this whole dilemma. But 
we've got extra money. What do we do? Well, I'm sitting in the back room and I'm saying, guys, we got to give some money back. You know, that's too much money just to go spend. Taxpayers deserve some back. So we all supported a tax cut that would cut your income tax. Now, if you look at state government, there's income tax that's making up actually less and less of our percentage. We're down below the 50% mark in income tax. The other half, the more than half, is the state sales tax. So we've set it up so there's only an income tax cut. The Senate set up so there's an income tax and a refund from state sales tax. So the Democrats, they want something back too. And if a high percentage of them are not paying income tax, then they're saying, well, we'll give us some sales tax back. So I get what they're saying, but I fundamentally believe I'm paying sales tax and income tax. So, of course, the Republicans kind of want it to be coming back from the income tax. Sure. So, so do we have any idea why a smaller percentage of the revenue is coming via the income tax? Has there been any study or research done as to why that number seems to be declining? I would say one of the largest is people are moving down here and they're retired and they're not paying income tax more, but they're buying goods sure. and they're spending their money, paying 8 or 10, 12% but, wherever you live. They're paying a capital gains tax on income they're generating as investments. Uh, they're the end of a work life is what I'm saying and not generating a lot of income. So okay. it, that's been, I think, one of the big changes when you're looking at the percentage of tax. So we're we're approaching a 60-40 now. We're heading towards wow. 40% of it only being income tax in the rest state. And, of course, we make money on tourists, and tourism has grown. And so they're not paying income tax here, but they're paying sales tax on all the goods, you know, and hotels and everything that they're using when they're here. Philip, walk us through, if you don't mind, as a member of Ways and Means, walk us through um, the appropriating process. In other words, when a government agency requests X number of dollars, how do we decide how much they get? I mean, you're in the room when these decisions are made, and I've tried to convince people that this is an important issue to understand, um, and you earn that. You, no, nobody says, hey, you look like the guy to go in that room. You earn that right to go in that room and begin appropriating dollars. Um, when a government agency goes to the General Assembly and requests via a budget, how, walk us through. I mean, for dummies, if you don't mind, don't get into the weeds because you'll lose us. But, but, but in, in, in elementary sort of a, an elementary understanding of that process looks like what? When you sit down, you got to start out understanding that you're only arguing about new money, extra money that's this year. Everything that's already plugged into their budget and a recurring line is not even discussed. And, that's and, the me- problem. and Medicaid is how much of that? Oh, I don't know. I mean, we we had to pony up an additional two hundred million for Medicaid this year, but I I, I don't know. That's, but, but, but that's billions I, of dollars, but the, and that's the point I'm making. So when you, when you're on the Ways and Means, and the state's budget is eight billion dollars or whatever the number is, it's not like you guys are going to divvy up eight billion dollars. A lot of that money is already spoken for, and the Medicaid. I mean, I've read a lot about this, and I remember my time in Columbia. They'd complain about how much Medicaid cost the state of South Carolina. Yeah, it goes up. Roughly a hundred million more dollars every year. So if if you only have a hundred million left over in your budget, if that's what it, if you start out in the year and you say everything else is going towards recurring costs and all we have is a hundred million extra dollars, they're gonna get it. I mean, there's not gonna be any raises. It's not going anywhere else. You gotta 
kind of take care of of those uh, or or those funds will roll in and they'll take it out of your reserves so you're not doing yourself any favors by giving away your reserve money so when the government agency makes a request and you guys do have new money kind of walk us through if you don't mind how you settle on who gets how much well all right say you had one billion dollars then you'll have roughly 30 percent of that just completely gone with these cost of living things just trying to keep up uh with with just paying for insurance and things like that that the increase in insurance state state sure. in state health plan to to help pay for insurance and all so you'll go through and about a third of it will just be captured right off the top then you start thinking what do we need to invest in and is it what do we need to invest in the most really because everybody's got their hand out wanting 10 times more than the budget's going to be anyway so you get into those extra dollars and you start allocating them and and you give the state maybe a, a one two three percent pay raise to its employees you may aggressively go after helping teachers or this year we did a lot with law enforcement and you just banter back and forth in a room filled with just eight of us and eight of us kind of nail the budget down what is the disagreement like within the Republican Party? I mean, in Washington, we got this Democrat versus Republican dynamic. The Democrats aren't uh, in the numbers that allow them to influence where, where the debate or discussion goes. But the Republicans have to have a lot of disagreements internally uh, within themselves. Is that the case? I mean, am I misspeaking there when I say, you know, the, the factions within the Republican Party may be the most important debate and decisions made um, outside of this this bipartisanship we expect out of Washington? Well, I mean, we call it leadership, but okay. it's pretty much Jay Lucas, the speaker, Merle Smith, the chairman of Ways and Means, and majority leader. Those are the three larger positions. And so they'll very often kind of come out and say, well, I think we need to go in this direction with our extra money, fund these kind of things. And then we all sit in the room Say, given those instructions, then we kind of work through the rest of the budget and and how it would all work out. Of course, the Senate starts over; they don't listen to a thing we've done, and the, you know they come out with their own budget. Sure, and they send it back to us, and we ignore them and say, "No, we insist on ours," and send it back to them. And then there's a conference committee where three in the House, three in the Senate get together towards the end of the session, and they talk about. To compromise. Then they have to go back to the House and the Senate, and we have to agree on the compromise. I, I want to ask you this, because I think people will be interested in this. We, we have a lot of debates on this show about, you know, the, the role of the legislature, the General Assembly. We live in a legislatively dominated state. There's been a little reform to give the governor a little more executive authority. Well, what is your opinion to that? You're a member of the General Assembly. Um, you, you guys, I mean, I know this. You, you guys... Um, I mean, you, you uh, obviously you consider the governor, no question about it. The governor appoints um, agency and department heads that you guys have to work with and budget um, or, or deal with with budget issues. But but should the governor of South Carolina have more executive authority? And, and what would that look like if Representative Lowe had his way? Well, I'm a legislator, so I don't want to give the governor sure. too much power. We want to keep it ourselves. Power is... Is what we're all struggling for up there. I That's mean, why you get elected. Yeah, I mean, and, and you stay there long enough, you do the right things, and and you have the ability, you gain more power. Um, but, you know, it's rare does any government body ever vote 
to decrease its power or pass it on to somebody else. So we do a lot of talk about that. That's good radio talk, but that isn't reality. And that's not reality. You see that anywhere. People don't vote to give up their power. But is it better now? I mean, in other words, we had a Governor Sanford who really looked at the General Assembly as not a partner, but more of a, a competitor. Nikki Haley would have been somebody who kind of looked at the, I mean, it seems to me that McMaster understands that, that you know, uh, he is the chief executive officer of the state, but he has to play ball to some degree with the General Assembly to advance an agenda that he can support. I mean, is it, th- th- does the governor we have today seem more willing that, than the previous two? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we got along great. And what that starts with is communication. So as the governor's starting to put forward his budget, which is comes out like in December, uh, and we begin ours in January, then our leadership's been already communicating with him on high-priority issues and, and what he's looking at. So, yeah, I think it's smoother than ever now. We don't get near as many vetoes and stuff because we work with them and communicate. Um, and, you know, there's always some back and forth between the Senate and the sure. House. It's a little bit of playful gamesmanship and and uh but that's a lot closer than it ever was so i'll tell you it's smoother now i believe other than this budget year where we're going to talk about that one big item and that's a billion dollar big item of giving back uh tax in not well sales tax refund checks that's a big item that's a billion dollars so that's going to be something we have to hammer out in conference committee. The relationship with the local leaders. I mean, I've talked earlier, but when you first sat down, that I'm going to try to schedule some time for our city council and county council members to come in. Um, how crucial is that relationship and how important is it that, that we're, we're working relationship with local government? I mean, you go to Columbia, do the business of people of this district, a lot of our listeners. Um it, it, the responsibility you have to work with the governor, the General Assembly, and the Senate. And all. I mean, I understand that. But but what sort of responsibility? I think our listeners would be intrigued by the relationship that you've cultivated and, and maintained with our local elected officials. By that, I mean the mayor, the city council, the county council. Ken, I've been in for 16 years. Never once has the legislature, has, has the delegation from Florence County ever sat down with any other municipality, any other group, no school boards, no nothing. Have we ever sat down in the same room, talked out and planned for a vision? I've tried to change that now. We had a meeting the other day. I've got the backing of the Florence County delegation, and we're going to sit down with all the mayors, the council people from top to bottom, city and county school board officials, and, and find a roadmap to grow Florence. We're not growing. Leatherman had all that power, and he had his one-on-one meetings, I'm sure. I heard about some of them. <laughs> I wouldn't include it. I want to include every. I want to be an inclusive leader. They have entrusted in me to be the delegation chairman. And my response is I'm bringing the meetings back home to Florence. I'm going to meet with the Florence voters and we're going to meet with the florence elected officials and we're going to start singing off of one page and that's my commitment that's how we're going to grow florence putting resources in the best spots to allow us to grow so far it's been split we had a meeting had 35 different industrial sites halfway finished around this county well that isn't a good way of spending money put your money in three or four make those happen and grow from there and get our jobs and get our people a better workforce. We've got to take care of 
K-12 and all higher ed to, to make it so people want to come here, businesses want to come here because we have uh, a well-trained uh, people workforce. Uh, so you put that with the money that we put into the industrial sites, and we're going to grow. Uh, and I applaud you for that. And I, I've said it over the airways. I applaud your inclusive effort. And, and I'm not beating up on the guy that was there. I mean, he had a lot of experience, a lot of, um, and, and I'm like you. I'm sure there were some one-on-one meetings that were, where things were accomplished. But, um, but, but the fewer people that are left in the dark, the better off I think we all are to uh, to grow a community that, to your point, and I've said, I think I said it this week, Rev, earlier this week, uh, the, the, the one thing I'll give Representative Lowe the most credit for, politicians don't like to say we need to start thinking about things differently. I mean, that's just, that's almost self-indicting in a weird kind of way. It's, but, but I, and, and I mean this, you've embraced that, that role and responsibility in a way that, that I think is going to be in all of our best interests. Because once again, the state has blown up and grown exponentially. We've not really participated nor enjoyed that. And what do they say the definition of insanity is? To keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And you've convinced yourself and others that we've got to change. And, um, and I applaud you for that. Well, I, I'm not an organizational guy. Okay. I, I don't want to do the taxes. I, don't, I want to be the idea guy, the guy that pulls people together and it makes things happen. I'm very analytical, and I can figure out pretty quick what I think is not going right and how do you get from A to C. you got to have B, and we've not had B in a long time. Can you hang around a couple of more minutes? Sure. 843-661-0937 is our number. Um, if somebody out there wants to call and ask a question, I mean, if you know, fair-minded question, I'm sure Representative Lowe will do his best to try and answer that question. I want to leave state politics, and I want to get his take on um, something he has no control over it, nor do I. And that is this Elon Musk Twitter story. I mean, I just want to get your take on um, the, the role of media, the role of fair-minded debate, and, um, and how it's different at the national level than it probably is at the state level. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. Representative Philip Lowe is with us. He got here at about, uh, he'll stay as long as, well, he can't stay as long as we need him to stay, but he'll stay as long as um, as we discuss some things that are relevant, pertinent, and interesting. Um, I want to go back to a local issue. Before that, I want to get your take. Kind of cliff note, um, richest guy in the world buys one of the most influential media sites in the world, or not, whether they let him buy it or not. Um, you're a conservative Republican. I'm a conservative Republican. I do believe that censorship prevails. I do believe that our ideas, our our concepts, our opinions are not allowed to permeate the public square as much as those on the other side. Do you feel that way? And do you think Elon Musk trying to buy Twitter is is something we should be interested in and encouraging of? Ken, I think from a national standpoint, for sure, that all, all the media... 90% of the media is liberal. It's controlled by the liberal left, and they're singing off the same sheet. It's almost like they pass around an email in the morning, what we're going to do today. Um, you know, Rush Limbaugh was a pushback from that. On a cheap little AM-type radio system, he he had 20 million people listening to Change every world. breath every day. Um, that's weakened us a little bit. But the censorship is a lot bigger issue than just left and right because – these folks are intentionally trying to sway elections and change public opinion. So we've got to fight back. If this guy's on our side and he wants to fight back by buying Twitter, so be it. I, I love the thought of that because freedom of speech is required. 
And he's a support. He's a free speech absolutist. I mean, he, he professes to be that. He's a lot of different things. I mean, he's a um, he's a transhumanist. He's a, he's an a. I mean, there, there are a lot of different places that we don't agree with a guy like Musk. But I think the majority of, of, of our listeners and, and I guess your voters have decided in this particular fight and endeavor, he's our guy. Y'all come up with some words. What's a transhumanist? You'd have to ask Elon Musk. I don't. <laughs> I, don't know. I just heard. I heard him one day refer to himself as a transhumanist. Um, transhumanism is based on um, the ability to replicate the human experience and artificial intelligence. He believes there will be a day that we don't need people. We've got artificial intelligence enough to run and operate the universe, but that's that's a bit above my pay grade. Well, you, you, I'm gonna I'm gonna be on that boat with you. You were just talking about <laughs> earlier. <laughs> there you go. We'll build the boat together. Hey, uh, the last issue I want to touch on, and and um, and it's, it's controversial, is the um. The constructing of a golf course in Johnsonville, South Carolina, that was voted on by the public via a referendum. Nobody blindsided anybody. The, the, the referendum listed where the money was going to be spent, how much of the money was going to be spent. The questioning I've had is what happens if it does go south? What happens if we fail to succeed at operating a golf course in Johnsonville? But, but I want to go down this road and, and get your opinion of this. Um, I grew up in Pamplico. I grew up in rural America. Um, in my youth, there was opportunity in rural America. There was farming and textile mills and, and manufacturing plants, and someone could live on the farm, live in a rural setting, and make a good living, provide for their family. Um, when you look at Johnsonville and a golf course, it's not just a golf course in a rural setting. It's hope. It's opportunity. It's believing that we can do something together that, that does make our small towns and communities better. Um, how important is it that the General Assembly and government in general understand the the concerns, the plight of, of rural America? I think that's our battle now. People are moving to the metropolitan areas, and they're becoming more powerful because they have more population. And the country, the rural areas, are losing population and, and losing their political influence. Um, what is it? That's going to make a person want to go move in Scranton or Coward or Pampico or Johnsonville, Olanda. These are all my little cities sure. in, in my district, in my new district uh, as of November. Uh, we've got to figure a way to keep them alive because there's something very wholesome about those communities. And, and I was standing there in awe just listening to the people of Johnsonville, how concerned they were about things. They, they cared about their school district. Hey, their school district is as good as District 1. Their scores are just as good. They've got a high poverty level. So now we're back to a golf course. Golf courses are unlikely to make a profit. They're actually more likely to need a consistent revenue stream in addition to what they can pull in at the tee boxes. And you have to decide what is it those people have down there that will attract will a golf course attract an industry well it is a it is a form of entertainment that helps with the quality of life but the thing i heard when i was down there was you know now when we lose a, a, a person dies and we need to sell the house we've actually got a buyer somebody will come in from the beach area and buy it and it becomes a bedroom community for the beach for conway from myrtle beach all the way to georgetown it's a place that people can come so keeping the town alive maybe a golf course helps with that do i think 
I mean, that, that's me playing, you know, a little bit of the sure, argument sure. outside. Well, I mean, but, but Philip, to interrupt, I don't want to interrupt you here because um, the newest addition to your legislative delegation called me this week. Uh, I'm not going to disclose all the particulars, but a conversation about um, what you believe. When I got elected to politics, I had this philosophical bent about me. I mean, I believed fundamentally in certain things. When I got elected, I realized that at times I've got to balance that philosophical bent I have, limited government, lower taxes, um, probably to the extreme at times, with the realities of the people I represent and how do we allow those communities to continue to um, support a way of life. Is that, is that, I mean, as a conservative Republican, don't you find yourself in those situations more than somebody who is a big believer in big government? Well, obviously the, the difference is I have the edge of Florence and I have those rural areas. So I've got a little different lean on things. I mean, I, my people are very much in the country in the edge of the suburbs of Florence. And they were selling their houses for what they had built them four years ago because mm-hmm. nobody wanted anymore. They were people moving out. So if you could attract a retirement kind of a guy and he's got a golf course to play on and he's 45 minutes from the beach, that's not a bad plan of at least keeping the community alive. Otherwise, you get no increase in your in your tax, your, your um property type tax Mm -hmm. you're actually having a decrease in property tax values and how do you survive on a decreasing funds in an increasing uh inflation inflationary market that we're in right now so listen i'm a guy that says that was about the dumbest idea i think you could have be to rebuild the golf course and now that i look at it it might be something to save the town and that's where we have to balance this philosophical bent we have. You know, the, the point I tried to make earlier, when I got elected to county council, I looked at the um, the budget, as you do with the Ways and Means, and I looked at the Parks and Recreation. And I said, okay, um, this entity within our city county government generates no profit. I mean, you got sign-up fees for baseball, but it's quickly consumed by, you know, investment in irrigation system or building fences or dugouts. I mean, it, if you looked at it as a business proposition, it's a dead loser. I mean, you just don't simply invest in it. You would abolish parks and recreation. But as somebody who's conservative by nature involved in government, there are some things that you don't look at from a bottom line perspective. You're a business guy. I mean, outside of politics, you have to look at the bottom line. I have to look at the bottom line. But when we look at these intangible values, these quality of life issues, I think it's fair to say we have to look at them fundamentally different. Would you agree with that? Well, government's not supposed to make money, right? I mean, we're we tax i hate to say we because i hate to even say i'm part of the government <laughs> i might be the most government hating guy in the room uh it you know just regulations and turmoil that they put me, me through in my developing the world um but i look at at, at a golf course to some degree just like i do a park and the park isn't really charging to make money you know, you, you people are swinging on swing sets for free, aren't they? Well, we're keeping it up and paying for it. That's part of a quality of life that we're paying for. Why is the golf course any different? Now, I agree it shouldn't be – we shouldn't be out here supporting industries that are competing. Well, I don't know anybody that's competing with Johnsonville Golf Course. I mean, there's nobody close enough, really, that's competing with it. That's kind of a real local park at this point. Um, I don't think a lot of people will be driving – from the beach to play golf on it, or from Florence, city of Florence, that often. 
But if people will go and, and make that town survive and buy those homes and, and and live in that community, you are in a way helping to save it. And well, I'll say that, you know, for, I have to say from both sides of my mouth, sure, sure, I can sure. take either argument, well, but, so and, we and, shouldn't be and, in that business. No, and I certainly respect that. But but once again, um, the cover, if you need cover, is that this was listed on a referendum as an item we were going to purchase and buy. Um, my, I think the biggest debate we had, Ref, correct me if I'm wrong, is the operating agreement. You know, what what is the operating agreement mm-hmm. look like and what were the specifics and particulars about the county's agreement or, or not? But no, I mean, the, the public, I mean, I don't. I, when people say we shouldn't do this or we shouldn't do that, when I voted for capital project sales tax one, the only reason I voted for it, I, don't, I, I voted to allow a referendum to go before the public. And then we craft the question. The public has input in, in the process of, of crafting the question. To me, it's about as democratic as it gets when you allow a, a local governing body to basically say, okay, we have this opportunity. Do you or do you not want to take advantage of this opportunity? And here's what uh, we're going to pay for with the proceeds of revenue generated by the penny tax over the next seven years. And, and I'll give the, the county credit. I mean, you know, as much as I don't like taxes, I think Philip agree. I think the county's done a pretty good job of managing sales crop capital project sales tax one, two, and now and now three. You know, if if voters could have struck things by the line on that project, they probably would have struck the golf course. But they didn't. It was an all or none, and there was a more than one thing in there that I objected to. You know that that it probably would have struck, but that wasn't the way it was framed. It was all or none, and and that's what they asked for. Those public officials down there that wanted that from the city council and that supported it from the county council, they have voters there, and that voters can always determine in the long run if they think something went too far. And, and we pay a price as an elected official yep. when they decide that. But right now, that's that's the law of the land, and I think you might as well get used to paying a little bit to keep it open because that's probably what it's going to take. I mean, or you're going to grow another field of weeds. See, and I like the candidness. I mean, there, there's a guy that's saying, you know, this may be coming, and then here's what you better be prepared for. I mean, I appreciate you being honest and sincere because I've seen uh, some prognosis that say, you know, it's going to be the next Augusta National. You know, <laughs> you know and, and people are going to stand in line. What's the movie Field of Dreams? If you build it, they'll come. Uh, that may not be the reality, and you've, you've kind of accepted that, you know, we'll deal with that when the time comes. No, it's that time's coming. I mean, it just – there's not enough population down there to keep a golf course open, and, and tourism is unlikely to fill that. Um, but if you create a park for the kids, do you let the grass grow up in it, or do you keep mowing it? See, I don't know how anybody listening to Philip could be angry. We may disagree about this, but the guy's being 100% candid and honest, which is pretty dangerous for a politician. <laughs> I just think today in America, and I believe this with all my heart, I think today in America we're looking for people in office who shoot a straight who won't try to dance around the issue and make up one story to cover up the last story they made. The one pledge I made over the airwaves, if I think it, I'm going to say it. And I really believe that the day is coming quicker than or sooner than later when politicians are rewarded for saying things that people may not want to hear, but they believe to be the truth. Huh? How refreshing. It's unbelievably refreshing because most politicians, well, I don't want to talk about that. Well, can, you know, let's, what, what's the price of eggs in China? I don't know, but government's too big, spends too much money. That was always the strategy I employed. But I applaud you, and I mean that sincerely, for being willing to candidly talk about things that, um, that may not be uh, politically expedient.
Well, Ken, I will admit, I rarely got to go out for recess. <laughs> <laughs> Good deal, my man. Good deal. Thank you, Philip. Thank you. Representative Philip Lowe, we, uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Friday. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. You all right over there, by the way? I'm good. I'm stand standing up. Stand up. Got stand a little ribcage muscle. I can see that. I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> okay. Stretching feels good. Uh, Lane in Darlington. Hi, Lane. You're on the air. Thank you. I just wanted to ask Representative Blow uh, his take on the Convention of States that the uh, legislature's just uh, passed in South Carolina. Yeah, he just walked out of the studio. I kept him for about 40 minutes and nobody, well, about 45 minutes, and nobody called in the second he leaves. <laughs> Um, you call. I'm sorry we'll about that. We'll try to that. remember that one for next time. Yeah, I'll, uh, he'll be here. I'm going to try to set aside some time on Fridays for those guys to come in. So um, I'll make a note and make sure when he gets here next Friday that we um, we ask him about it. Or he listens sometime. Maybe he'll text me uh, what, where he, what he believes. Well, Ken, what do you think about the Convention of States? I am absolutely for it. I mean, I, I'm 1,000% in support of it. I'd love to see us get to the number of states that um, allow us to amend the Constitution. You know, the two things that I would probably – prioritize as term limits or a balanced budget amendment. I mean, if we get a chance, one strike at it, um, I, I go back and forth whether term limits should be what we focus on or, um, you know, deficit spending. And I'm convinced now that term limits, as dangerous as they are, or excuse me, as good as they would be for the political system, I'm probably more in favor of a balanced budget amendment because deficit spending, I think, is is going to be the ruination of the country if we're not careful. I agree with both of those, and those those two priorities. My concern is, uh, you know, you keep reading about the balanced budget amendment. Then, if we had a war, would we have enough funding to be able to pay for the war? So, I've heard good arguments both ways. Yep, thank you, Lane. Appreciate it. And I'll try to get. Um, I mean, you know, Mike Rickenbaugh just got elected, and I don't want to overwhelm him. I mean, the guy's trying to get his feet under him and um, and understand the way the Senate works. And having presided over that body, it can be a task. To begin with to try to feel your way around or understand exactly uh, which way is up so uh we'll, we'll try to get mike in here and i want to reach out to sumter and orangeburg i mean i don't know that i understand clearly how to do that but we broadcast in those markets and i just um i think it's interesting for you i mean i've got four hours five days a week i mean i thought about it the other day i do a week of tucker carlson nearly every day and true. i mean he does five hours of television a week i do 20 hours of radio a week and he probably has a support staff well i'm sure he does i don't need a support staff i'm a one-man band you know that <laughs> I know. you tag along and um i just, I just, just gotta run my coat yeah. but anyway um <laughs> but, but but no in, in all seriousness i think you know hearing from the local officials nobody's voted for me i mean i'm a guy with a big mouth and a radio show but but these guys are you know they're they're there they're on you know boots on the ground and and and, and the the Sumter City Council the the Orangeburg County Council the mayor of Florence the the local delegation the Senate the House I think all of these people are very interesting and I think it helps them to engage the public um, I, you know th- there's always been the mindset of elected officials that if I hide I can get reelected and I think the public is on to that now and I think the public rewards people however controversial. Um, you may say something. I think the public rewards people willing to engage them where they are, give them honest answers and opinions of what they believe. I mean, I think that's grown-up politics, and I think we should demand more of that from our elected officials. Let's go to the phone. 
Hey, it's Karen in Florence. We have about uh, 30 seconds. I'm sorry, you. Karen. You want to hold on and let's do it after this break. It doesn't matter. You don't have anything to answer. I just have a question. Sure. Um, if, if South Carolina, for Representative Lowe and whoever, the governor, are we going to join in with uh, Governor Abbott as one of the states to start to try to start uh, securing our border? We need to do that, Th- I thank, believe. Thank you. Appreciate the call. we got to take a break. Great we'll try question. to address that on the other side. Back in a minute. It wouldn't be a good Friday without the boss, right? I suppose. Jesus and Bruce. <laughs> kind of the uh, the two really? center yeah, the two center pieces of uh <laughs> of today's show. Uh I'm joking around. Hey, I-, I did say earlier this morning, and I want to say it again, today to me, and this is simply my opinion, uh, is the most consequential day in human history. I can't understand the virgin birth. I mean, I accept that as a matter of faith. I can't comprehend. I can't, uh, I, I don't know, my mind does not process. So, so we accept the miraculous and supernatural on a faith. I, I, I have faith and I believe in the virgin birth. I have faith and I believe in the resurrection. I can't begin to explain that except I have faith, except I believe in something that is supernatural, that that is out of the norm. That, that human beings can't comprehend nor explain. Today is not the virgin birth, supernatural, or the resurrection, supernatural. Today is a very humanistic event, um, the crucifixion. And the crucifixion is something I think we can all understand. If you're any, any of a, uh, it doesn't matter if you're a student of history or not, um, there was a day in, in, in world history that, you know, people were crucified. That was a punishment for whatever the crime may or may not have been, and the Romans were really good at it. So when I think about Easter Sunday, uh, I get real emotionally attached to that, but, but I still don't comprehend it. The virgin birth, Joseph and Mary, the, the sto- Christmas story, I, don't, I can't fathom nor, nor comprehend how a man and how a woman can become pregnant without being impregnated by another, uh, you know, another man. I mean, I, I just, for the, that ain't the way the world works. But, but the crucifixion embodies, represents, is symbolic of a very real and humanistic event that defined um, the Christian faith and was the beginning of the Christian faith or the, 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 the post-Christ Christian faith where you know God sent his son as a savior, a sin atonement to the world. Um, some accepted, some did not, some believe, some do not. I certainly respect those that don't share um, my belief in um, the gospel story. And and I just think, Rev, I've always, I do this every, every Good Friday. If I'm not careful, I'll get emotional. I try to put myself there. And I try to convince myself that I wouldn't have fled, that I wouldn't have bailed, that I wouldn't have said, I don't know that long-haired guy, that guy that's been running around saying he's got, uh, uh, I, you know, because once again, the supernatural is inspirational. It, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's touchy and feely. Today was not. I mean, today was unbelievably brutal. There was blood everywhere. There was human flesh everywhere. That they were real, live, breathing human beings witnessing and perpetrating of the events against someone who said he was the son of God and savior of the world. And and I've always tried as as hard as I can to say, nah, man, you would have stood there. You would have defended. You would have done what Peter did. You certainly would have done what Judas did, the truth be known, I don't think I would have done what Judas did and betrayed for 30 uh, silver coins 
but I think I would have done exactly what Peter did. I think I would have said, hey, that guy's been saying the craziest things you could ever imagine, and and if you'll get away from me with those whips and chains and all that, uh, uh, I'm on the other side of this. And, and I think it's okay to struggle with that, and I think it's okay to accept that human frailty and human fear and intimidation would have probably carried the day when the Romans looked at you and said, are you with him or not? And I'd have probably said, nope, not today. And, and that's why I find this day so revealing and so important and so real, just absolutely real. Let's go to the phone. Here's Tommy in Rimbert listening to WDXY this morning. Hey, Tommy. Hey, good morning. Can you hear me? I am. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Hear you loud and clear. Hey, Ken, thank you for being there, being here. Um, I've got about, well, this is a tough job to follow. You put me, you put me behind it, but hey, I'm <laughs> glad I'm here. Um, I've got about 40 years in the education business, and I, I've, I understand the challenges and people talking about how schools are indoctrinating kids. And for the longest, I looked at South Carolina as saying, uh, it doesn't happen here. Well, let me tell you about maybe some wokeness that has come my way. Um, there is a news feed that about 90% of the schools get. And it, it is even placed in the instructional program that our schools operate off of. And it's called News ELA or News Love, and News ELA. And a guy by Matthew Gross uh, puts this out. And of course, he's got a big team. I had never paid attention to it because I don't use other people's stuff. I mean, I've got, I, I know what I'm doing. But the amount of wokeness that's being pushed into our schools on a daily basis is unreal. And I just, for if 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 I had been a new teacher or something, and and I'd been getting this, I probably would have said, "Oh, the state likes it. I'm gonna go ahead and use it in my classroom." But this stuff is, you know, they. There was a racist lesson on. on it was about the racism. Of, of, of jazz music. Well, <clears throat> I, I enjoy jazz music. Uh, didn't know it was racist, but, um, and, and, and there were some, some other things that were out there and it was just, I, I did not realize it was so prevalent in our education. And it has really been embedded in so many levels nowadays. It just kind of blows me away. Thank yeah. you, sir. Well, appreciate that. Thank you for the information. Appreciate you taking the time to call and it's not just the wokeness i mean it, it's um it's the inability to discuss the wokeness it goes back to the media it goes back to um twitter it goes back to elon musk trying to buy twitter why is elon musk trying to buy twitter because he's a free speech absolutist if you believe in, in the wokeness of the modern american political left then be willing to debate it be willing to defend it to be willing to say that yeah i think this is in the best interest of education, young people, whatever it may be, K through twelve, higher education, but but the the woke crowd. I mean, that's an elementary way to say it. I can do better than that. The, those who support these elements of wokeness, 
in the name of um, equity and equality and diversity and non-discriminatory practices. Um, I mean, it's morphed into this silly nonsense that has become somewhat of a religion that people worship at the altar of. I'm okay with people awoke. What I'm not okay with is, is, is not forcing them to defend. When Disney says certain things and the governor of Florida addresses those in an aggressive fashion, all the forces of elitist media go to uh, aid and assist the governor of Florida. Oh, I'm sorry, it did not. It went to aid and assist the, mm-hmm. the voices of Disney. I'm, I'm more than willing to debate anybody about anything, wokeness included. And wokeness comes in a lot of different varieties. But, but the point we've tried to make here today, and I think the point we've tried to make for 10 years since being on the air, is if, if you believe, let, let's use gender fluidity. Let, let's, let's, for argument's sake, say it's unfair to say a five-year-old is a boy or a girl. They need to decide at some point in time what they are. Do they identify as a boy or a girl? That would be an element of wokeness. I mean, there's something that that is a debate. The woke, uh, or that's an issue. The woke want to address. Um, you know, to say to say a four year old is a boy is unfair. To say a four year old girl is unfair. Let's let this four year old develop and identify in whatever race or variety of that they choose. I mean, the absurdity of that. But the reason some people have bought into this nonsense. They have a liberal disposition anyway. That that liberal disposition feeds upon a lack of debate. Nobody says how crazy that is. Nobody gets a chance to confront scientifically or um, emotionally what, what, where those sorts of issues lead. And that's what Twitter wants. That's what the media wants. That's what the liberal left wants. They can't beat you with ideas because their ideas have become warped and evil. I mean, let's call it what it is. To suggest to a four-year-old boy you're not a boy is not just warped. It's evil. I mean, it's maniacal. It's diabolical. It needs to be addressed. But we live in a country now that, that says um, woke ideas are, are liberating. Therefore, nobody deserves to confront those. And we must debate these. And that's why I'm such a, a fan of Elon Musk. His motivation, I mean, maybe there's some economic interest here with Musk, but I think Musk is a free speech absolutist, and he sees a a burning need for us to have debates. And I can tell you this, 99% of woke, if it it were addressed in a debate format or formula, would be dismissed as nonsense. But it would be. It would be dismissed as nonsense. But wokeness in America today and liberalism by and large in America today is protected by a very monolithic media that has become somewhat of a propaganda arm. And all I'm saying is if you believe in some of the craziness of the American political left, tell us why you believe in it. Be be willing to be confronted about it. And that's what we're not having enough of. Let's go to the phone. Here's David in the PD. Hi, David. Hey, good morning. Hey, good show, Ken. Uh, we start out with Skinner and Jesus. <laughs> uh, you would have to bring Bruce in there, but I'm going to give Bruce credit. I ain't nothing but tired. I think I love that lyric. That's a good lyric on his part. Now, I was thinking about Elon Musk. Hey, man, when you reverse an algorithm far enough, you got to find a creator. And I call that with a capital C. So now we talk about Jesus now. Um you think about the, you know, he was born in Bethlehem. I guess he lived most time in Galilee, Nazareth. Home Sunday, he's going back to the big city, Jerusalem. 
and I think he is greeted by the common people. But who did he encounter? Well, he went to the temple and the money changers. Wow, think about this. This is 2,000 years ago. Money changers. And then we had the religious authorities that were beyond question. He had to encounter them. He had the political figures, the Pilate and Herods of the world. And they were backed up by a military, and that's where the Romans got their power from, even though I guess they you think about they maybe worship multiple gods and God being with a lowercase g. Uh but think about how has our world changed since then? It really hasn't in a lot of ways. Um so whenever I think about this day, and I'll leave you with this, I love this song. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Think about we're still talking about they. Y'all have a good weekend. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. You know, the interesting part of David's comments, and I've often wondered this, the world has changed unbelievably over the years. I mean, we think about the way man operated, and I'm talking about man. I always have to say this. I don't want to be chauvinistic, um, man figuratively and not literally, but man operated in a certain way for a certain time, and then, you know, um, innovation and technological advancements, and I mean, a lot of things have happened along the way, but but the one thing that is, in my opinion, um, never changed is the truth. Um, Something is the bedrock of civilization. Now, now the Christian believes that this weekend is the bedrock of civilization. Um, Other things matter, but they pale in comparison. I mean, where you go eat today matters. Where you go to uh, on vacation matters. How, How well you treat your fellow man, all of that matters. But it pales in comparison to what the center of the universe really is. And today, if you're a Christian, is a day we celebrate or mourn. I mean, I guess we do both, don't we? We mourn the crucifixion of a Savior, but we celebrate the crucifixion of a Savior because we know the prophecy. We know the prophetic um, connotations along with the New Testament and why Christ was was here. But, but yeah, David's right. I mean, th- things change. I mean, th- things have always changed, and they'll continue to change. Um, Musk may on Twitter, he may not. You know, six months from now, a year from now, I don't have any idea. I mean, my money's on him because I think they have a fiduciary response. So we, I, we have all these debates, but, but they pale in comparison to the truth. What truth is our lives anchored in? When we flail in the wind, when, when we fail to meet our standards, our own standards, much less the standards of our, our fellow man, um, what, what, what are we base? What is the baseline? You know, what is the baseline of truth? What is the baseline of morality, of ethics, of how we live our lives and conduct ourselves? And to me, today is the day that begins the story. And I'm talking about the three days of Easter. And uh, I think somebody, somebody even texted me and said, uh, he was crucified on Friday, raised on Sunday. That's not three days. Well, it is three days. It's Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Daggone it. It is three days. Um, it may not be exactly three days because it's late Friday afternoon and early early Sunday morning, but it includes um, three days. But, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, as the world changes and we change with the world and, and we all, you know, we debate these slippery slopes. I mean, where do we stop it? We start that. I mean, how do we stop that? If we start this, uh, are you really going along with that? Yeah, all of those things matter, and they're consequential, and they lead human beings into a certain um, into a certain existence. But but something is the truth, something is the center, something is the foundation, and for me today is important because it reminds me 
of where that truth lies. Let's go to the phone. Jim in Florence. Good morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. So, Ken, I don't I don't know whether to be mad at you or not. I, I got daddy duty today because daycare's closed, and now I'm having to YouTube Bruce Springsteen songs for my so, uh Consider yourself <laughs> blessed because there, there's, a, there's a, a plethora of Springsteen opportunities out there. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, I said earlier uh, this week uh, the, the PD's dying before our eyes. And I think you took a little bit of exception with that, and I'm sure there's some exception to be taken, but I, I kind of stand by that statement. Um, you know, we look at every county in the PD, all of them lost population except for Florence, and Florence only grew by 1%. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not real growth, and it's probably just absorbed from people moving from those other counties to Florence. Um, when is, is, let, let me interrupt you there, and I'll, you know I'll give you time to finish. Is dying yeah. a, a bit of an extreme? I mean, when you said it's dying, I don't disagree that there are serious issues that we must address as we move forward, but is dying a little bit extreme? Well, I think to get your point across, you got to go okay, hyperbolic. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, uh, imagine me accusing somebody of being hyperbolic. <laughs> really? <laughs> That's fine. But uh, I mean, when it comes to the PD, though, we're probably returning to our uh, we're probably returning to our pre-World War II levels. Um, that's what I kind of see happening. Um, but when I hear and I want to get to this golf course, when I hear the arguments against the golf course and I and I, I hate to be accusatory, but I hear a bunch of baby boomers who benefited greatly from the investments of their parents and grandparents generation and then they're turning around to give something to their children and grandchildren but they're not willing to do it um i you know i don't don't know if the golf course is the right answer or not but clearly johnsonville thinks it is and and johnsonville's struggling just like every other community in the pd um and i think we need to give them their opportunity to succeed and if they think that golf course is it then then so be it that's very interesting, Jim. And I think you heard him. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. But I think he's got daddy duties. You get to hear the little, yeah. little fellow in the background or little guy, I don't know, boy or girl. Uh, did he say boy? I think he, did he, he say son he or daughter? He's on daddy duty. Okay, he's on daddy duty. Uh, don't want to make any assumptions there. But, um, no, I, I mean, Philip Philip told during the break uh, about, you know, it, it's hard. I mean, it's, it's a hard place to be because philosophically, you know that's not a role for government. But you've got an obligation to try and govern people and offer opportunity and hope and um, – you know, one of the questions, I think Jim will appreciate this if he's still listening uh, and not YouTubing Springsteen videos, <laughs> but um, one of the questions, I'm moderating a debate, and I've always approached most things in my life um, good old boyish. I mean, I don't know if that's a, a behavior, but I, I mean, I, I'm a good old boy. I'm from the country. Thick pen gives me a compliment of um, you can dress the country boy up and carry him to town and he can hold his own. Uh, that was kind of a political skill I had. I don't know if it served well in anything else, but it did with, um, in other words, when I go to the first Tuesday club in Greenville and speak, I know when to wear a nice suit and, and clean up the ain'ts and y'alls, but by the ain'ts and y'alls are who I am. I mean, jeans and no socks is me in my most natural state, but, but, you know, this debate that we're having, uh, Rev called me and said, Hey man, this thing's going to be televised. Uh, this is a little bit different than anything we've ever done. This is going to be a, um, I mean, I think it's going to be offered to their national network, if mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken. There will be a great degree of political interest in this congressional debate we're hosting. And um, it was kind of our brainchild. I mean, Rev and I were sitting in the studio one day and told our general manager, hey, we need to try to host a debate. I mean, we've become somewhat of a political gathering place. Uh, the, I don't want to say the epicenter. I think that's unfair to others. But we've tried to uh, hold our own 
and having political discourse and keeping up with political matters. And I told Rev, and I think he agreed, hey, we need to host a debate. We need to see what we can do to get all these these candidates. Um, the one thing I do have is a lot of relationships. So I reached out to the candidates. They they were inclined to say, yes, we'd be uh, supportive of appearing in that debate. Uh, I think the reason that they've, uh, they've entrusted with me that responsibility is I'm not out to get anybody. I'm not out to try and, you know, ask somebody a question more difficult than another candidate. All of these candidates deserve equal treatment from the moderator, and, and I'll be the moderator. But the one question I want to ask, and I've not figured out a way to do this yet, is it pertains to income inequality. And it pertains to never before in American history of such a small percentage of Americans own such a large percentage of its wealth. Um, philosophically, I don't have a problem with that. It seems to me that some people are winning and some people aren't. That's the nature of capitalism. But but I've convinced myself, maybe rightfully, maybe wrongfully, that the some are getting more than they deserve. They've gained the system, that they've manipulated or distorted the marketplace. And I think Republicans have to be ready to answer questions and, and address problems such as that. Um, does the government have a reason to invest in a golf course in Johnsonville? Everybody listening to my voice knows the philosophical answer. Of course not. Does the government have an opportunity to provide opportunity, excuse me, to, does the government have an obligation to encourage opportunity in places other than major American uh, markets? Yes, absolutely. There's the quandary. There's the conflict. There's the perpetual struggle that good, honest politicians have introspectively what to do about those situations and how far down that road am I willing to go. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. It was my intent before we heard the Springsteen song, and everybody got excited about Springsteen. And Oh, is that how that happened? And Jim's YouTube and videos for his oh. kid. Uh, his kid will be uh, much better prepared to meet the real world where the real world is if he continues to um, follow the lyrics and um, genius of Springsteen. Really? Uh, yeah, wordsmithing. Wordsmithing, Rev. Um, you don't know anything about that. Mm. But but we were going to talk about Article 5 of the Convention of States and you know, ratifying amendments. We'll do that. But um, our callers have taken us off into a different direction. Let's go there. Mike in Darlington, what direction are you taking us? Uh, well, I, I, I want to touch on a couple of things. I agree with you, Ken, that this is a very important day. And I don't think any of us would be here except for the grace of God. That's my personal belief, and uh, I feel that it's uh, probably yours, too. But the uh, on, on the situation, I think, with Jesus, I th- they never they, 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 they were concerned about him, but they never desired, decided to uh, do away with him until he missed with the cash flow at the temple. And those uh, temples back in those days, my understanding, were those were cash cows for the uh, Roman Empire and for the local priest, whether it was a a temple to the living God or a temple to uh, Venus. And uh, he was interfering with the big cash cow. When he interfered with their money, he had to go immediately. Uh, they might have had some questions before, but now they were sure. But uh, it it all falls into the plan of God, and uh, thankful for the grace of God. But as far as uh, Elon Musk, I don't know what he's doing, but I think he is uh, he's doing something important 
and just posing the question, should somebody else be running these platforms and should someone else have uh, control other than the uh, wokesters that seem to have taken control of all of our, just about all of our media? And I think that, that that's a noble endeavor. On Bruce Springsteen, uh, if you got to play Springsteen all the time, <laughs> I know you can't help it. You like him. But, uh, well, why don't you play a couple of numbers from Ashbury Park? Cool deal. We can do that. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, Mike touched on Elon Musk, Jesus, Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> um, <laughs> my, my affinity and affection to Bruce, uh, Springsteen is his ability to articulate himself and um, – and I mean, a lot of his lyrics. I mean, he admits this. He admits he's a phony, right, Rev? I mean, he, he admits he that. He's written in, about in his Broadway I mean, show. He did. He, he says you're looking at a guy who's become wild and insanely successful, writing and singing about things he knows absolutely nothing about. I've never worked in a factory. I've never held a real job until now, and he's doing a five day a week gig <laughs> at, uh, on Broadway. But but you know, but but he has the ability to communicate. And maybe that's a, that's an essential key to the world. I mean, those that have an ability, I've said this to my kids, you know, I don't care what you major in. I mean, I, I don't care what you do for a living. I mean, that's your life. You've got to, you know, if you ask me for advice, I'll try to give you the best advice I can. But, but, and I've told them and I've told my wife this, you know, they'll be fine. I, my kids will be fine if they're able to communicate and get along with other people. I mean, I sincerely believe that being able to articulate yourself being able to understand the plot of your fellow man, being relatable to people. So when you look at Springsteen, I mean, there's no doubt he's a five-star liberal, but he writes about things that are very relatable in normal people's lives. Um, getting out of small towns, uh, finding a girlfriend. Uh, you know where I'm headed. I mean, it's about real-world sorts of things. There is no rocket science to Springsteen's music. I mean, he's a wordsmith. I mean, Rev would admit that. I mean, Rev's not a big Springsteen fan, but he's told me off the record. I mean, the guy's a genius when it comes to songwriting and and arranging and and really dedicating himself to a craft and a profession. And and I've always been a big believer, whether it's Musk, uh, whether, I mean, obviously Jesus. Uh, and now anybody willing to empty the tank for what they believe in, I hold in high regard. I mean, I, I, to, in a weird way, stop and, and don't turn the radio dial. I have respect for Bernie Sanders. I mean, I have no respect for the Clintons because they don't stand for anything. They don't believe in anything. Bernie's a true believer. I mean, he's back crap crazy, and we need him as far away from the levers of government as we can get him. But I think Bernie believes that socialism is the best way, that that bigger government is better government, that that confiscating money from people who work hard diligently to, to make it. I think Bernie sincerely believes that. Um most politicians don't believe anything. So in the weirdest way imaginable, I have a lot of respect for Bernie Sanders because he believes in what he says. And we live in a world where so few people really believe uh, what they say. They and, say and he it connected because with voters from sure. Uh, he went far enough that he was going to be the nominee or the Democrats for president last time if the power people didn't get Th- there involved. There is no doubt about it. Bernie Sanders was going to be the Democrat nominee had the Democrats not um, basically rigged it so he wouldn't get the nomination. And, and a lot of people felt compelled toward Bernie um, because they liked that he sounded sincere. You know, I mean, the Clintons have never meant a word they said. 
I mean, a lot of people do that. Uh, the easy way in life, I'll give you a real quick life lesson. You ready? If you tell people everything they want to hear, you'll end up okay. But what have you stood for? What sort of investment have you made in the life? I would rather be in the short line of people who are willing to say what they sincerely believe with a little bit of um, a little bit of toil and turmoil, turmoil than, than the long line, that what I'll call the go-along-and-get-along line. We've got way too damn many people in the go-along-to-get-along line. We need more people in the line, the short line, I'm willing to say what I believe despite what trouble it may bring about. Let's go to the phone. No, we don't drops. have a call. Yep, okay, I'm dropped. sorry. Uh, we had a call, but he dropped. Uh, my bad. So do we go back to our Article 5 now? Because um, <laughs> yeah, we had sure. a caller earlier yeah. about the Article 5. Yeah, um, well, okay. I mean, a lot of people have argued to be 34 is the number when it comes to Article 5. Article 5 is the right to amend the Constitution, Convention of States. And then you get on, what are we going to amend? Is it going to be term limits? Is it going to be a ballast budget amendment? Um, I mean, personally, I would rather see the ballast budget amendment than I had term limits but, um, but a lot of people, 34 is the number. 34 states have to agree. I think the number now is 19. The caller was talking about Philip Lowe, and Philip supported that. Uh, let me look real quick. Yeah, March 29. So just recently, um, South Carolina became the 19th state to sign up. Now, there are other states that have passed in one chamber, but not the others. Uh, New Mexico, let me look here. They're trying to get me to give some money now. Imagine that. <laughs> little ad came up. Hmm. Um New Mexico, Iowa, South Dakota, Virginia, North Carolina, New Hampshire. Um, that would get the 19 to 21, 23, 4, 5. That would get us to about 25 or 6. And then you've got Colorado and Kansas and Kentucky and Michigan and Minnesota, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New Mexico, North Carolina, Ohio. There are plenty of states considering the Convention of States resolution um, to get us past 34. But you got to remember, 34 gets the, the Convention of States it takes 38 to ratify the amendment. So the number's not really 34. I hear that number over and over. And man, if we could only get to 34, stop thinking about 34 because it takes 38 to ratify the amendment. Therefore, the number to shoot for is and always has been uh, the number 38. But Article 5 of the Constitution um, basically grants the states permission to convene and, and address some of the issues and amend the Constitution um, but to ratify the amendment, and 34 can do that, but to ratify the amendment, it takes 38. So it's always been my belief that the, uh, the number ain't Herschel Walker. The number is George Rogers. <laughs> There's a football comparison there. I'll send Rev a video. I told you, I gave Herschel a little money and went to a fundraiser for Herschel Walker down in Walterboro at a sportsman club. And I had the time of my life. I don't like going to those things because people don't think they're crap sticks. They think they're better than everybody else. Um, you know, who's the most important person in the room? Uh, of course I am. And if you asked 100 people in the room, all 100 would say, of course I am. I mean, that's, the, that, that's, that's my takeaway of politics. You know, who's got the nicest Gucci loafers and who's got the best Hickey Freeman suit? Who's, um, who's most important in this room? Uh, but, but when I went to the sportsman club in Waterboro, it was not anywhere near that sort of experience. It was a bunch of good old boys. Uh, outdoorsman and construction uh, owner, construction company owner, for whatever reason, everybody I bumped to owned a construction company. Um, but they had um, dicky khakis, Carhartt jeans, you know, uh, flannel. It was, just, it was my crowd. I mean, it's somebody I'm very, very comfortable with. And Herschel Walker was there and special guest George Rogers. And they were playing this Heisman Trophy thing. And I sent Rev a video of Herschel Walker saying, 
I'm in South Carolina and I'm trying to raise money to be the senator from Georgia and you can't believe who I've got here helping me. Fellow Heisman Trophy winner George Rogers. And Herschel says, so for you out there who want to, you know, who support the America First agenda, who want to see America, the Senate changed, um, send 10 or 15 or 20 or 25 or even 34. That was my number. Or better yet, 38. That was your number, right? <laughs> and George goes, yeah, that was mine. <laughs> and it's just funny to watch. I mean, it's so cool. Though. It is. It is extremely, extremely cool. And um, two guys, one running for Senate, one not. <laughs> Let me make that very clear. Um, one not. I asked George, I said, why are you here? Herschel. You know, Herschel asked me to come. I don't know anything about politics, man. I don't have any interest in politics. They're all crooks. Uh, you probably one of them when you were up there. You know, yeah, George, because George calls me now. He calls me Radio Man. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's what he calls me when I see him. But anyway, it was the most authentic. But Herschel, uh, Herschel wanted 34 or $38. So uh, for those listening that want to help Herschel and from South Carolina, send him a $38 donation. They'll probably know. And he'll know what uh, you mean. Yeah, he'll know what you mean. Take a break. Back in a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. Got a couple of minutes here. We'll come back at the end of our show, conclude with our Pepsi of Florence. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. Trivia questions. Still having supply chain issues. So we're down to one T-shirt, one six-pack of Pepsi product uh, per winner. But we certainly appreciate Pepsi-Cola, Pepsi of Florence, and what they do um, for all of these efforts at the feeble attempt at Radio Brilliance that we do Monday. Mm-hmm. I just thought about something. So I do a week's worth of Tucker in a day. Yeah, you just pretty much. That? Yeah, I do eighty yeah. percent of what Tucker does in right. a week. I do it in one single day. Am I not the hardest working man <laughs> in radio? Seriously, I mean, can can we adopt that? Is there some copyright? I, see, I think I think Ryan Seacrest probably would would claim okay. that hardest working broke man in radio. How about that? <laughs> um, hey, I want to read this and then we'll take our last break so we can come back and do our Pepsi Flores trivia. Um, I've I've kept this all week because this is um. This is the way polit- by bureaucrats. Let me say, this is the way bureaucrats explain things. Remember the billionaire mi- mi- uh, minimum income tax? There is no income, but there's an income tax. Um, and, you know, Joe Manchin's been highly critical of that. Yeah, that's well, like what do you mean Elizabeth an income Warren tax thing. when there is no income? I'm a Democrat. I can normally find a reason to tax. But damn if I can get there from here. The, mil- the billionaire's minimum income tax is there is no income. Well, here's what... The language is of the bill. You ready? Um, payment of tax obligations these households will owe when they later realize their gain. <laughs> I just laugh. Take a break. Back in <laughs> what? a minute. 843 is the number. Takes Mondays to make Friday's trivia. Thanks to our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. Today's Good Friday. Here's kind of an interesting question. You ready? Put your thinking caps on. What language? Do most religious scholars and historians believe that Jesus spoke? I mean, it was a language principally spoken in that historical era. What was the language that was probably spoken today, a couple of thousand years ago, when uh, when Christ was in Jerusalem, Mount Calvary, uh, Golgotha, all those other uh, very important cities in America, excuse me, in Christian history? But yeah, what was the language that was spoken. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Hi, you're on the air. Do you know the answer? Aramaic. You're right. Aramaic is it. First time. Hey, uh, first person with the right answer. Yeah. Who is this? Right where you calling it. from? Steve from uh, Florence. Okay, Steve. Thank you a lot. Well, hold on for a second. We'll get back to you in just a minute after the show. But um, only got about thirty seconds here before we got to get out. 
Uh, but but thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. Hey, it's Good Friday. It means some things to some people. It means other things to other people. Uh, there's a weekend in store. For me, today is the most consequential day in human history. And as much as I try to convince myself that I would not have bailed and run, I probably would have done what the Bible says Peter done or did and deny. Enjoy your weekend. Happy, Happy Easter. Easter. And, uh, and we'll talk again Monday morning.